0: Bet Saratoga this summer with Naira Betts, the official betting partner of Saratoga Racecourse. New customers that sign up today receive a bonus match on their first deposit up to $200 with promo code SPA. Go to nyrabets.com for details and sign up today. All right, now,
1: I know this is gonna be hard to believe, but, I've learned my lesson, okay? I'm hurt. That choke slam, double choke slam through a table—that just hurt me. I'm hurt bad, and uh, just want you guys to know I'm sorry for everything I've done. I'm—I'm I'm sorry to Undertaker for. Having bulls steal your motorcycle and sorry to Kane for trying to take a picture of your gross face. No offense. Really. Hey, I'm sorry. It... Really, I didn't find it offensive, but those other guys in that DX thing and that McMahon, that jerk, Vince, he found it offensive. I told him, I said, I feel sorry for Kane, but they felt like they needed to push the issue. I don't know. and. And Earl, I'm sorry for beating you up all those times and getting you fired. I'm sorry to all these jackoffs. No really. No really, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry to you. Sorry to this idiot right here. Sorry to this jack-off that thinks because he's got his hat on backwards like me, he's cool. I'm sorry to his girlfriend because she's got no boobs. Hey. But most of all, I'm sorry to The Rock. Because, uh, I know I've made it tough for you all these months. Constantly with those other guys beating you up and making all these matches and just causing you hell. Rock, I just gotta say I'm sorry in front of the whole world. I'm sorry, you know? And what I'd like to do is to show you I'm sorry. I'd like to shake hands with you, Rock. And I'd like to bury the hatchet. And then, after you and I shake hands, we can all have a big group hug, and I'll, I'll just leave. Man, I'll just, I'll just walk out of this ring, and I won't cause you any more problems, all right? So what do you say, Rock? Put it there. Shut up, because you're confusing him! All right? This is for real now. This is a shoot, honest to God, now. I'm trying to be nice. Rock, I'm sorry. Well, man-to-man, The Rock will say a couple of things to you. When you insult the people, you insult the people's champion. But The Rock says he'll let bygones be bygones. But before we shake hands and give the big group hug, Rock just wants to say a couple of things. Number one, is you are the game. Number two, you're pretty damn good WWF champion. But number three, The Rock, Kane, especially The Undertaker, we all agree that you're also an asshole. Undertaker The Rock says, bring your big dead ass back here, he's not done. Well, the Rock says this the show's over, no more theatrics, no more sports entertainment, none of that. The Rock just has one question and one question only Do you like pie? like pie, is it uh, apple? (laughs) Must be that. Peach. What's your favorite type of pie? (laughs) There ain't but one kind of pie Cain and I both eat. Cain loves pie.
2: Man, that was one of the things I used to love about WWE as well, especially more back then because they were in New York a lot more and we used to go to WWE shows and you would look forward to see what would take place after Raw went off the air. Even back then, online, and I'm sure a lot of you will remember this, that WWE would have an event, they would do a skit or a segment after Raw went off the air, and in a lot of places, they would have the satellite feed, and we would be treated to seeing footage that was not available on regular television. They would sometimes even show footage of dark matches. Now, I know WWE, in recent years, have started releasing videos, DVDs, Blu-rays of footage that was not seen by, you know, the televised audience. And I think this segment that I just played is on one of their recent releases when the cameras went off the air. I think it's the same release where they showed the Ric Flair retirement, uh, the, the Booker T and others trying to get Undertaker to do a spin-a-rooney, The Rock. It's, it's hilarious. But this clip is from 2000, and it was this week in history after Raw went off the air. Undertaker telling us all that him and Kane, only one type of pie that they like, Poon tang pie. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Episode 24, This Week in Wrestling History. Don Tony here, as always. You know, we hit week 26. We're right smack halfway through the year, because it's 52 weeks in the year. And as I've said many times before, the episode number corresponds with what week we're in during the year. So, since this is episode 24, we're now in week 24. So, this week we covered a period of June 12th through June 18th. And I got to thank you all for the feedback. Absolutely, everyone is loving the audio clips. And for those that love the audio clips, especially, this episode's a treat. 25 audio clips will be played on this show. I kid you not. Now, the cool thing about this episode is that most of the clips are between one and five minutes. So I like the idea of doing shorter clips for this episode, which allows us to play more because I I don't I think three hours for an episode is the absolute max. Yeah, you might go over an extra ten minutes here and there. I would love for these shows to be more in the two hour range, but it seems like two and a half to three hours is where it's starting to settle. And because there are so much memories that we could share and audio clips to play and segments that you might have completely forgot about or never even knew about, it's fabulous. And thank you everyone who loved that additional little segment that we started last week. I will pick a particular year that, since we're in the month of June, I pick a particular year every week during the month of June and I will let you know what took place during that year during the month of June, that had nothing to do with wrestling We did that last week, and the one thing that a lot of people were asking over and over again is Hey, since you do audio clips for wrestling, why don't you do a clip or two during that segment as well? It's not audio, and yes, we will do that a little bit late I'm not going to reveal what year we're going to be covering this, this time But I think you will absolutely enjoy it Because it does tie into last week's episode of This Week in Wrestling History So let's start this off, and we're going to kick it right off with an audio clip 1979, Memphis Wrestling, the infamous Tupelo Concession Stand Brawl. It featured Larry Latham and Wayne Ferris, who you now know as the Honky Tonk Man. They had just won the Southern Tag Team titles against uh, Jerry the King Lawler and Bill Dundee. And the reason why I'm playing this five-minute clip, and it's I didn't play the whole thing, just five-minute highlight, just to give you an idea about it, is that when you hear it, Keep in mind that this is 1979. The footage is available online. It's very grainy, but it's still entertaining to see. And when you hear when we're covering especially the feud of ECW and Jerry Lawler and USWA versus ECW, and you hear Jerry Lawler talking about how he's the originator of hardcore, Memphis is where it was hardcore, he's not lying. I mean, I'm not saying that 1979, Memphis is the origin of hardcore, but for anybody that was a longtime loyal, dedicated, really, really hardcore ECW fan from back in the day, you know that they would have segments where Joey Styles is on commentary, and then Joey Styles would say, uh, there, "There's something going on in the locker room. Grab a camera, let's go." And I think the most infamous one was when Steve Austin uh, debuted, when he was uh, the uh, Steve Omania, when he was doing that. And I think it was the gangsters having a little bit of a problem backstage with the Public Enemy. I, I don't know, if, was it Too Cold Scorpio? No, it wasn't Too Cold Scorpio. He might have actually been in, in that argument as well. But you had Joey Styles say, let's get a camera, let's go. And he's in the back and he, they're arguing on it. You're Steve Austin. And the rest is history. Well, when you hear this, it reminds you of ECW. Just the way that Lance Russell does the commentary, how they go off the air and Lance Russell is like, let's keep a camera going. You know, is this on? He even got to the point, the damn camera stuck and all that, but it's really, really cool. They're brawling in the concession stand, using tables, using condiments, frying pans. The only thing that I wished more is if Lance Russell would have been more detailed as far as the weapons that were being used as he was covering this. But still, the audio is awesome. It'll give you a good idea of what these brawls were like going back to 1979. Enjoy.
3: It is a brawl in the center of the ring. The referee who is abused outside of the ring, let's be fair to him, by both Latham and Lawler got in and gave a count on Dundee, with Latham covering, got a three count, and the belts were awarded to Latham and Ferris, as Lawler and Dundee, grabbing the belts back, are pounding on Latham and Ferris, trying to get it stopped as the referee and having no success, Lawler bleeding where he was nailed with that belt. Ferris. Latham, the referee, is down again. A wild melee going on in the middle of that ring as Lawler and Dundee with those belts jerked away from Latham and Ferris. And Dundee comes around from the side. Yeah, I know it. Our time is running out right now. We're going to have to call it quits as our time is up on championship wrestle- wrestling. It looks like that uh, they are outside the ring. This is Lance Russell from the Tupelo Sports Arena. Hey, Mike, can you get the camera? they got a hell of a fight going on down there. See, can you get it down? Let me get the light stand off here. Bring it on. We'll go back and edit this. door. I know it. We'll edit it back in. Okay, can you get it rolling? What you're looking at is the wildest fight we've seen. Latham and Ferris and Dundee and Lawler in the concession stand, all four of them bleeding, pounded each other. Lawler fired a gallon jug. They're banging away. Watch out, Mike. Dundee with Latham and Lawler with Ferris. Oh, there's Mustard all over us. I hope it didn't get in the camera. The referee trying to get him stopped. Dundee right on top of Latham, right below us. We are on the stairs leading down to the concession stand. A gallon bottle had been thrown, glass on the floor. Waller slams Ferris with a stool and again. Waller rattles a pan around. Dundee on the far side being stomped on the concrete. Can you get it? with Latham. In 27 years of it, I've never seen a battle like this. And Lawler, trying to be strangled by Ferris, while Dundee, with a mop, wailing Latham. Promoter Jerry Jarrett, although he is not a promoter here, trying to get him to stop. He's got Dundee separated. Lawler. Latham having been racked up by that mop handle. Dundee going after him. It's just a street brawl. Jerry Jarrett with referee Jerry Calhoun. Jarrett trying to get it all stopped. Dundee picks up a table. Everything broken up. They're falling all over. Mustard everywhere.
2: 1983, Buddy Roberts loses a hair-versus-hair match against Iceman King Parsons. Took place for the Star Wars event, hosted by World Class Championship Wrestling. I'm sure some of you may remember those events and if you've never seen this card and you're into old school wrestling, go out of your way to see it from 1983. I mean, ma- one of the main events, Kerry Von Erich and Bruce Brody winning the tag titles over the Fabulous Freebirds. Harley Race versus Kevin Von Erich. Kamala in a three-on-one handicap match. Giant Baba's on the card. King Kong Bundy. Jumbo Saruta. Genichiro Tenryu. I mean, the card is absolutely stacked. Definitely a, a really good card to check out. Now... We fast forward to 1985, absolutely, bar none, I've said it my entire life, my all-time favorite wrestler. Terry Funk makes his WWF debut, and he does it in a very controversial way. People still talk about it to this day. It's a shame because of what Mel Phillips turned out to be. I mean, Pedophile, I mean, just weird, abuser, to the point where I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but for a long time, WWE did everything they possibly could to avoid Chris Benoit from being mentioned anywhere. They would eliminate Chris Benoit in footage, they would do everything out of their way to avoid that name. And over the years, you know, we've seen the footage come back and, you know, they'll never acknowledge him, but they can't take away, you know, what the guy did. They'll just put disclaimers up and they'll never mention his name and this and that, but another person who they really go out of their way to delete from any vintage footage, and that's Mel Phillips. I mean, I'm not kidding. I mean, yes, there's some cards where he actually does some, you know, announcing of matches, but for the most part, a lot of segments, a lot of skits, a lot of moments that he had some some part in, they are all eliminated, And it's a real fucking shame that Terry Funk's debut in a WWF in 85 uh, is really never, ever going to be shown and uh, celebrated WWE.com And look, it's not that it's celebrated that he beat up Mel Phillips, but it was just so wild to have somebody come in the way they did. Nobody ever really ever seen something like that before. It was just incredible. It was awesome. And... um, I have the audio I want to share with everyone And I also have as a little bonus uh, Three very quick audio clips Of Terry Funk when he first came into WWF One is when he was on Piper's Pit Another is when he was on The Body Shop And I, I, I was going to leave it out But I can't Because too many people absolutely find it hilarious The infamous Juicy promo But first let's get into the match itself Terry Funk makes his debut And he's wrestling Aldo Marino. And remember that name because it will be brought up a couple of minutes once again. Aldo Marino honestly should be fucking really, really ecstatic. I don't know if the guy's still alive or anything like that. But this is something, if I was him, he would definitely brag about and tell his grandkids about. Uh, Not just because of the match with Terry Funk. I'll explain in a little bit. But here you go. Terry Funk's debut in the WWF against Aldo Marino, 1985. From the Double Cross Ranch
1: in Amarillo, Texas, weighing 260 pounds, Terry Funk. That's a big, tough hombre, as Bruno Sammartino said earlier on.
4: Perhaps the toughest ruster to ever hail from balloon Star State. And Mr. Funk has ask for a little assistance here
5: terry funk has made quite a reputation for himself through the years this guy has been everywhere and he's met them all and he is a tough tough man He's a vicious man but nevertheless he's been a winner throughout his wrestling career oh look at that (laughs) (laughs) oh oh Oh, oh no
1: whoa oh wait a minute oh no oh oh come What's happening? I can't. Perry, fuck. This ring attendant was simply. Oh, my goodness. Was simply trying to take his things. Oh. Oh, this poor man.
5: Look at this now. That was the, uh, the ring attendant. My goodness.
1: seen anything like that in my life.
5: That's Terry Funk. Tell he's got some reputation for this sort of thing.
1: I think that's just about the wildest thing I've ever seen
5: in my life. No doubt about look at this. And that's been carried back, and he is hurt. There's no question he is seriously hurt.
4: Terry Funk taking over on Aldo Moreno, where he left off on the ring attendant. God, he's just crazy enough to go right out into the...
5: Uh, That's Funk. Right into the fans, I think. Hey, that's Terry Funk. He's known to do a lot of crazy things. This is a crazy wild man.
4: Well, you were right when you said he was the meanest wrestler to ever hail from the Lone Star State. He took no time at all in proving that. Reversal. Funk to the buckle. Oh,
1: man! Terry Fuck on the outside moments ago. Marino with a jab kick. All of a sudden, things don't look too good for Terry Fuck. Ooh!
6: Fuck has him up. Suplex!
1: Terry Fuck with a suplex just moments ago,
5: and Ooh! kick to the head oh,
1: Arena up in the air oh. Terry Fox oh. doing no mercy whatsoever spinning toe home and really wrenching it in
6: <laughs> just like that it's over
4: being greeted by a round of booze
1: and jeers. They do not like this man in his very first appearance here in the World Wrestling Federation.
4: Terry Fox! Terry Fox something else again. I'm sure we'll be seeing a great deal more of this wild man from West Texas. Oh, he is
5: something else.
2: You know, a lot of people to this day wonder, did any of Terry Funk's beatdown have anything to do with Mel Phillips's, uh, you know, horrible behavior? And look, I'm not going to spend time here getting into the bizarro world of Mel Phillips, but WWE was sued a few times because of alleged abuse. Uh, underage uh, ring attendants being, you know, groped by Mel Phillips. And if you actually do a little bit of uh, research on it, Mel Phillips had a very bizarre foot fetish. And he would want to rub the feet of the young ring attendants. And there's actually testimony from at least one or two different ring attendants who sued WWF that Mel Phillips would take their... Well, actually, one of them claimed that Mel Phillips stepped on his foot and, you know, they, at the time, the kid doesn't know that it was done intentionally. But he steps on his foot. Ow, what the fuck did you do? Oh, I'm so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me let me rub it. Let me rub it. And he pulls the sh- shoe off. He pulls the sock off. And he's rubbing the guy's foot. And he just stepped on Mel Phillips. And meanwhile, he's sexually aroused. And there's other claims that he would ask people to take their shoes and socks off so he could rub their feet and masturbate. Very, very weird motherfucker. And yes, a lot of these allegations came out a little bit later, but still, people still wonder if there was anything behind Terry Funk beating up Mel Phillips because of things like this. Now, quite honestly, I don't think so. I don't think so, because you got to look at the time frame of when these acts were started to be alleged. And at the same time, Terry Funk coming in, you know, into the WWE in 85, right in the middle of the Rock and Wrestling Connection, and his first set of duties is to take out Mel Phillips. I just don't buy it. And I would think sometime by now we would have heard something otherwise. But before we move on from Terry Funk, here is very quickly three little audio highlights of Terry Funk when he first came in in 1985. And it's funny. You know, if you listen to the one on Piper's Pit... You know, Roddy Piper makes a little comment about the junkyard dog and the cowboy. I'm surprised. I, look, I'm not a PC soldier, social justice warrior in any way, but I play devil's advocate. And I'm surprised that when this clip is played on YouTube, you don't have s- social justice warriors in an uproar about what he said about junkyard dog. I don't want to spoil it, but enjoy. You
1: big, good-looking animal, Whoa. I rode over to my neighbor's house. I said, hey, how big are Hulk Hogan's arms? He was bragging about Hulk Hogan. He said, they're bigger than yours. I said, well, how big are Jimmy Snooker's arms? He said, they're bigger than yours. I said, well, how big is Ricky Steamboat's arms? He said, oh, they're a lot bigger than yours, too. I said, well, I want you to know something, neighbor. I have an extra large, an extra large maybe not arms, maybe not legs, but I have an extra large. What I have an extra large in is a heart. That's right, I've got an extra large heart, and that's what counts in sports. It's nothing else. So all of those muscles, that makes me hot. And every time I think about it, it makes me hot. It makes me hotter and hotter and hotter. Well, I'm so hot. I'm juicy. We have Mr. Terry Funk, the greatest dog dogged cowboy I ever seen in my life. Between you and Ace, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Please sit down if you wish. I'll just stand because I'm here to talk about dogs, dogs. and I know you know a lot about dogs. <laughs> I've all kinds right of different dogs, man. My daddy told me that a dog is a dog, and a junkyard dog is no dog at all. Ah. Very smart man Papa is. It's just a clown, a buffoon. And that's exactly what the junkyard dog is. You know, hey, Ace has branded over a thousand cattle in his life. Huh? I've branded thousands of cattle. What do they say? What what do they sound like when you brand them, man? When you put that hot fire on them. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> Do you know what kind of noise the J Y D is gonna make when I put the branding iron on him? No, nah. nah. He is going to go. He haul. Nah. He haul. <laughs> As in jackass! He is a jackass! (laughs) You know, when I come to think of it, I ain't never seen someone like him riding on a horse wearing a cowboy hat either, man. Neither have I. (laughs) And when I have a chance at the junkyard dog, all he is is a big nose, big eye, airhead. And when I get up to him, I'm going to brand him not once, but I'm going to brand him for good. This is Jesse the Body, and I want to welcome you to the Body Shop. You know, there's a lot of people that run around the United States, Canada, and the world who like to pretend that they're cowboys. Well, my guest is a true cowboy, a bounty hunter, a man from West Texas, where the only real cowboys come from. I'd like to introduce one, Mr. Terry Funk.
4: You know, I'm not here to tell any campfire stories. I'm here to tell why I am in this area. And I'm here to tell you a
1: story of terror. Several years ago in 1981, I was wrestling in the Bahamas. I was wrestling a fine black athlete. There was 99% blacks in the crowd. I had the man in a submission hold, and as I had him in a submission hold, the junkyard dog came into the ring. When that happened, all hell broke loose. A thousand people were in a mob and in a riot. I had to fight my way to the dressing room, on the way they hit me with a chair, knocked my body to the ground, they kicked me in the ribs, they broke my ribs, I tasted blood, they knocked my teeth out, and they broke my nose, and they took me to the hospital for nine days, and you know whose fault that was? That was a junkyard dog's fault, the no good puke of the block the no good egg sucking dog and he's gonna have to answer and taste right blood him. he's gonna answer to terry Funk, a bounty hunter if i ever seen one
2: now for a few of you out there that are still wondering hey, what did roddy piper say that would have gotten sjw's bowls in a bunch well you know look I'm sure some of you would be like, well, look at Junkyard Dog's size. I mean, maybe that's what he meant. I don't know if that was the case, but it was the combo where Roddy Piper said he'd never seen anyone like the Junkyard Dog, who's a cowboy, pretty much. You know, I, I, you take it however you want. So. Now, remember I said Aldo Marino has a nice little story to tell his grandkids, probably still to this day. That same taping of Terry Funk coming in and wrestling him in the return and beating up Mel Phillips in the process. Aldo Marino also wrestled on the same taping Macho Man Randy Savage, who was also making his WWF debut. And if you watch the match online, you have every heel manager around ringside scoping out Macho Man, you know, Mr. Fuji, Classy Freddie Blassie, Jimmy Hart, Bobby Heenan, Luscious Johnny Valiant, I'm sure I might even be forgetting someone, and they were all, you know, just oohing and on over the Macho Man. And the storyline at that time was who's going to be the Macho Man's manager? And he would ultimately introduce us to Elizabeth, and the rest is history. So there you go. Now, go all the way to 1992. Kane makes his pro wrestling debut. This was uh, kind of. Like, difficult to research He debuted for the Central States Wrestling Association A CSWA promotion in St. Louis He debuted under the name Angus King 1992, Scott D'Amore makes his pro wrestling debut He debuts for the BCW promotion in Ontario, Canada Under his name And in his debut match, he defeated Otis Apollo Also in 1992, New Jack makes his pro wrestling debut. And from my research, it looks like that his debut was for USWA under his name, New Jack. Also in 1992, a wrestler by the name of Reza Ramon was introduced to us this week in 92. Started out with vignettes, hyping up his coming to the WWF. And this week they aired the first ever vignette. I have it for you right now. And following the vignette, is a very recent interview clip that Steve Austin did with Scott Hall about the Razor Ramon gimmick. And when it first came in, who came up with the idea, how's the name uh, developed? And not only that, he actually tells a little bit of a story behind the skit that you're about to hear. So enjoy both clips. Razor Ramon's first promo and his interview with Steve Austin. Enjoy.
4: We take you now, ladies and gentlemen, to a Cuban immigrant, an individual who apparently feels as though the streets of America are paved with gold. Here is Razor Ramon.
7: Ramon. Razor Ramon. I call from the gutter. I know that. I got no education. Who needs it? Look at me. Look at me. Look at
5: the gold. Look at my clothes. I'm a success. I'm coming to the WWF. All I want is what I got coming to me. The world, chico. This
1: thing now, how did you pitch the idea of Razor Ramon to Vince, or did he pitch it to you? How was that born?
7: Well, I, uh, you know, I mimicked Razor, and even prior to that, the Diamond Stud. When I, right. I rarely spoke to him, but when I did, I would say I'm the bad guy or something. I was a huge, you know, Scarface Mark. I'm a huge fan of that movie and Al Pacino's character as Tony Montana. Yeah. So I was mimicking that. I was mimicking that, and at that time, you know, the, the character in the movie was a guy who was real hungry and willing to do just about anything to be successful and in, in, in what he wanted and to get things that he wanted for the people he cared about. And at that time in my life, that was a shoot for me too, man. You know, I had bounced around four or five years in the wrestling business internationally, not much success in the U S successful in like Puerto Rico, Europe and Japan, not much in the U S where it really mattered and was about to give up when, uh, you know, I ended up coming back from Europe with, you know, I was married to Cody's mother then and Cody was on the way. He was in her belly about six months along and I needed a JLB. I had, I was considering just giving up wrestling and, you know, working at Sears or something, maybe learn how to work a forklift, you know, have a name tag mm. on my shirt. Wow. I didn't care. I'd get me a little duplex and have some kids and have the other riches in life. And, and again, like I said earlier, when I, when I quit worrying about everything, it started happening. Right. Ah, excuse me. I resigned myself to the fact that wrestling wasn't going to be my deal. I was going to go ahead and try to have a family do that. I had one more commitment to make in Europe and I went. And when I came back, here comes Cody on the way, and I need a J-O-B. I called Dallas and a pitch the Diamond Stud to him. That worked. I appeared on WCW-TV one time. Now, Steve, I've been calling Vince's office every week for a year.
5: Are you kidding me? To
7: Pat, asking to speak to Pat. Because told me to do it, so right. I do it. I call, and believe me, I feel like it's your bra. And I wasn't your bra. And they call, can I speak to Pat? He's busy. Can I leave to take a message? I tell him Scott Hawthorne. So I do it every time for a year. Now I go live here on the WCW TV one time with this new look with the black hair and the double and the toothpick. And I get home. I have to drive from Atlanta back to Orlando. They don't even fly me. It's how right. valuable I am to the company. I drive back. It's eight hours. I get home. There's two messages on my machine for Pat Patterson. So I called Pat, immediately I get put through this time. Wow. with mm. like a big shot. And, and, uh, hey kid, this is that, you know, hey, Vince loves the new look. Well, tell me, you just signed a contract with those SOBs. And I said, Pat, I just got done signing one. I said, I don't want to work for them. I said, I wouldn't have called your office every week for a year if I did. Right. And he went kind of, and he started laughing. I love that. He started right. laughing. He goes, calm down, kid. Calm down. <laughs> Dude, don't worry. In a year, you'll be able to tell them New York wants you. So a year later, I went up to New York and again, I still had to try out, you know, I had a successful tryout match, Lexington, Kentucky, first match of the, you know, extended hours long TV taping. I went out there and they gave me a job guy to beat because a lot of times uh, when they brought guys in who'd been in the business for a little while at that time, Vince would check your attitude by taking a guy who'd been around and then having you do a job. Right just to see where your head's at Yeah. when they give you that big push they want to know you'll do business and I had the match and Vince you know at that time was really into the realism angle like you know Big Boston was really a precious officer so right. he goes well I understand your father's in his service I said Vince man you want me to be G.I. Joe I'll be the best G.I. Joe I, I said you ever see Scarface he went oh no and then you know I pitched the Razor gimmick to him the Razor name and you know he went with it and um, the rest
1: of the well, tell me the story about how you pitched it, because you went into, you 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 already had the character down, right? You told him what you needed and what he didn't. I've been doing
7: it. I've been doing it. i never, you know... Well, break did, it down you know, for me. How have been going? doing it in the locker room.
1: So you say, hey, man, you, give me the impression. Give me the razor.
7: Oh, uh, well, now I had the luxury of walking in there with Mr. Perfect, Kurt right. Munich, who was like my mentor in this industry and who I knew from the AWA days. And Kurt was one of those guys who... Always cared about doing what was right for the business. You know, he, uh, you know, he, he babied me. He carried me. We were tag champions in Minneapolis. Yeah. Kurt did everything all I did was make to come back and beat the guy. And to the point where it made Kurt look weak to some of the fans, where un- unknowledgeable fans would say, now, Scott, you should dump in and he's holding you down. I'm going, hold me down, man. He's keeping me from drowning. I'm circling the toilet, man. This cat's the only one teaching me anything about what's really going on. Yeah. And so I go in to meet with Vince and I go prepared because I've been around. You know, I got a new look, but I've still been in the business five years at this point. And I go in there prepared, but, you know, Kurt has schooled me to be humble. Yep. You know, so I go in there and thanks for the opportunity, Mr. McMahon, and this and that, and I'll be G.I. Joe if you want us. You ever see the car face? You went, no, I said, say hello to the Pad Cat. So I just started doing the stick, you know, and yeah. he goes, he goes, wow, he laughed. He goes, well, we need a name. I've And I've been thinking about it, like Shrub Shadow. You know, it's a different era. You had to have like a gimmicky, marketable yeah, name. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Big, thinking, b- bigger than life.
7: Yeah, I was thinking Shrub Shadow. I remember Road Warrior Hawk gave me Deadbolt. But I was leaning towards Razor, so I pitched Razor, and Vince went, well, uh, there's already Razor Ruddock, like the boxer. I, I yeah. kicked his monkey up, and, you know, <laughs> I just, it's just a line right out of Scarface. Yeah. And yeah. boom, you know, and he started laughing. He goes, we need a last name. So I, I leave, you know, we leave there on a positive note, and I'm out there. You know, they erased my name off the board. I was just going to have matches on, like, their USA primetime show, just like jabroni matches to fill time. Yeah. They took me off the board. You know, I'm going to get a push. I'm in the bathroom. I'm so happy. I'm washing my hands. Tito's like brushing his hair. Tito's fantastic. I said, Tito, I need a last name starts with an R. He went Ramon. Oh. I went back to Vince's office, knocked on the door. I said, "Raise Ramon." He went, "That's it." <laughs> and man, he 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 left. You know, Steve, I was so flattered. We were doing. I would I used to just tag along to TVs because Vince just wanted me seeing how things worked, and I wasn't debuting yet. Right. And we were in Ottawa, Canada, at a TV, and Vince went, "Let's go," and we flew to out beach with an outlaw film crew and shot four or five vignettes the same day. You uh, know, and I had brought wardrobe changes just in case. Right. It's, it's okay. So it looked like it was different weeks. We shot about five of them in one day. Now, this is the funny part. You know, you don't know have He doesn't care. We're out there shooting. We're, shooting. we're shooting. We're shooting. We don't have permits or anything. We're just outlaw, like, you know, commando style, setting up stuff, shooting and then moving on. It starts to rain. You know how that tropical weather, yeah, yeah. it just starts to rain sideways. So we just break it. He's on the phone. His tickets wait for us. We dr- we go into Miami International Airport. Now I've got a vest on with gold chains, no shirt, slick back hair with the curly Q, silk <laughs> pants, you know, loafers. And in that airport, no one even looks twice. You right, know, and right. I'm Jack. But I'm with Ben, and everybody knows who Ben's is. So right. they figure I must be somebody, but they don't know who yet. And it was just an experience I'll never forget. I felt like I was in costume walking to the airport. And in that airport, no one even looked for it. Wrapping up
2: 1992, it was this week that the uh, WWE, WWF would have the World Bodybuilding Federation second WBF championship from the Long Beach Convention Center in Long Beach, California. Um, Lou Ferrigno, you know, was supposed to take part in the deal, but it fell through. They uh, then were going to have Lex Luger take part in the event, but he couldn't do it because of a motorcycle accident. I think a lot of people think that at that time when they were saying he was in a motorcycle accident, was it true? No, he really did. He really did have a motorcycle accident. But unfortunately, the second annual WBF championship did not go well as uh, at all financially. You look at the pay-per-view buy rates, I mean, it's not even 5,000. That's pretty much. And it ended up at that Gary Stridham was the uh, winner for a second straight year. And a month after this competition, Vince McMahon would fold the WBF. And on record, he suffered about $15 million in losses. It doesn't sound like a whole lot. But still, you know, a lot of people were criticizing him at that time for the failure of the WBF. So it was this week in 92, they had their second annual competition. A month from now, we'll be doing an episode talking about how the Federation was folded. 1993, Bastion Booger makes his debut on WWE television, losing to Virgil. Also that same week, 1993, King of the Ring, Yokozuna defeats Hulk Hogan to win the WWF championship. This was very important because this was Hulk Hogan's first match back with the WWF since winning the WWF title, WrestleMania IX. And at this time, it would be his last appearance on television. He worked some house shows leading up until around the August, you know, September months, but then sat out the rest of his contract along with Jimmy Hart and would ultimately... Sign with WCW In fact It was almost a year to the day Let's get into it Almost a year to the day Of Yokozuna beating Hulk For the WWF title His last match on TV It was this week in 1994 That Hulk Hogan Quote unquote Signed the WCW contract Live on June 11th 1994 episode of WCW Saturday Night Who could ever forget it They had the Big parade in Orlando, Florida, loads of red and yellow colors. I'm not going to lie. I was glued to my television when this went, went down. You know, I was a Hulkamaniac. I grew up a, a wrestling fan. Hogan, you know, I became really, really enamored with him after Rocky Three. Even though I haven't seen this magazine cover since I was a kid. I still remember buying a pro wrestling magazine that had Hulk Hogan on the front, and it said pro wrestling or Hollywood, and it was just a really big deal. He was uh, so popular. I did not get AWA at that time. Um, I had a friend of mine who used to tape trade very, very early at this time when he was doing AWA stuff, and you know, believe me, I tell you, tape trading in the early '80s was unheard of. But you actually did do it through pen pals through other ways. And you know, you had a relative that lived in a different area in the United States and they would tape something on a v- VHS and send it to you. So we got to see it a little bit. But, you know, I was a huge Hulk Hogan fan. And to see him now go to WCW, yes, he was smaller in size, but he was not fucking 50 years old. He could still do it. And um, this is far before the NWO ever formed. I mean, he was still the red and yellow. But it was this week in 1994 that they had that huge parade in Orlando, Florida. Now, I have some highlights of it. The press conference that Hulk Hogan did at that time. Now, keep in mind, and I knew it at the time, they were cheesy as fuck. And looking back and watching it again this week for the first time since then, it was even cheesier. But... All of the reporters that are asking Hulk questions, they're all plants. The questions are really, really hokey. You actually look at the people, they're showing their facial mannerisms, their reactions to what Hulk is saying, and there's someone that's like writing down, like, like, you gotta see it. Hokey, hokey shit. But still, it is definitely something major to talk about at this time. This week in 94, Hogan signs, WCW.
6: All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are live at Disney MGM in Orlando, Florida, the press conference, and thousands of fans are here to see one man. Welcome Hulk Hogan! dude, oh, what's happening, brother?
1: You know something mean, G, We're on nationwide TV, brother. WCW and Hulk Hogan, all my Hulkamaniacs are on TV with us right now. And I told you, little dude, that Hulkamania is going to run wild. Check this out, brother. Check it out. Oh, my.
6: Jimmy Hart, you...
1: Well, this is great,
6: baby. This is definitely the greatest day of my life, baby. All right, Holster, before you do anything else, I've been asked by a World Championship Wrestling officials to make it official. Right here, I've got the contract. I'm gonna have you with uh, your John Henry and Jimmy Hart, you little legal beagle, you see to it that this signature is affixed to the contract. And then let's hear it because history is being made right before your very eyes. That does it. Here we go. Get ready for the ride of your life, ladies and gentlemen. Hulkster, this kind of a reception in this great city, what does it feel like? Well, you know something, Mean Gene, this has got to be the greatest day in
1: Hulk Hogan's wrestling career. I mean, you dudes have been Hulkamaniacs since you were about this high, if you can dig what I'm saying, brother. You know, and the thing is, the thing is, you've seen me take on all comers. you see me be a champion as many times as I get fingers on my hand, brother. I've body slammed Andre the Giant. God bless his soul, man. I beat all the best. Right in the center of the ring. And the one thing that I've always dreamed about, the one thing that I've always dreamed is to make not only Hulkamania, because Hulkamania, the training, the prayers, and the vitamins that's instilled in this generation, that's going to be immortal. But I want myself, Hulk Hogan, to go down as immortal. And the only way to become immortal in the WCW is to beat the man. And you all know, woo! To be the man, you got to beat the man. So my goal in the WCW is to go all the way to the top, and when I get Ted Turner by his arm, we're going to find out who the most powerful man in the WCW is. Because as I bend him down all the way to the table, Ted Turner someday will say, Yes, Hulk Hogan, you've got the match with Ric Flair. How
6: about that? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have members of the press. Obviously, they've got some questions to ask. Uh, Let's start out uh, right right here. Okay, sir. Mr. Hogan, you've enjoyed great success as a professional wrestler winning five world titles. And you're immensely popular
8: all over the world. What more do you hope to accomplish?
1: Well, brother, winning five world titles is one thing. But there's always been a lot of controversy on who really is the champion. Right now in the WCW, they're going to have a unification match rick flair versus sting and the great champion that lutez was and gorgeous george and harley race and now rick flair held one belt the other belt is being held by sting and the deal is now we're going to find out who the man really is between rick flair and sting and we're also going to you got that right brother i am the man and you're also going to have one belt one champion and you can't set your sights any higher than that because whether it's sting or whether it's rick flair I'm going to get in the ring with one of those guys someday, and I'm going to prove that Hulkamania is the strongest
6: force in the universe, brother. All right, uh, young lady. Oh, i got a two-part question for you, Hulkster.
5: What do you miss most since being away from wrestling, and what do you most look forward to when you step back into the ring?
1: Well, the thing I miss most about professional wrestling is all those Hulkamaniacs out there, brother. The thousands and thousands of Hulksters that believe in me stand behind me through thick and thin. It will was the other part of that question? What else?
5: The other part was what do you most look forward to when you step back in the ring?
1: Well, I think I've already answered that. What I most look forward to is stepping into the ring with that WCW logo in the background and beating each and every contender until I get my hands on Ric Flair. That has got to be the pinnacle of success to
6: get Ric Flair in the ring. All right, sir, question from you.
9: Yeah, Hulk, you move
8: from the WWF to the WCW, it's a big move. People are comparing this move to Joe Montana's move from the 49ers to the Chiefs. What do you think about that comparison, Hulk? Well, you know something,
1: brother? The big man upstairs, he moves mountains, dude. And in seven days and seven nights, he created the heaven and the earth, brother. And on the eighth day, dude, he created Hulkamania. So I can't wait to come into the WCW and show him what the strongest force is all
6: about. Here's the Genesis. Yes, uh, young lady. Hulk,
5: what WCW
6: wrestlers would you most like to compete? What WCW wrestlers would you most like to see in the ring? Well, you know something. I'm going to throw that
1: out to the crowd. I think
6: you dudes can answer that question.
1: What WCW wrestler would Hulk Hogan love to bust up the most?
6: All right, we had a telephone uh, poll recently, and uh, we've got time for one more question, sir. Go right ahead. Yeah, you mentioned in
10: one of your previous interviews, Hulk, that your son, Nicholas, asked you if you could beat Ric Flair. Do you
9: really feel you can beat him, and how are you going to do it?
1: Well, brother, let me tell you something. If you were standing up here and you saw the look in all these Hulkamaniacs' eyes, if Ric Flair was right here, right now, I'd let him put that figure-four leg lock right on my legs. I'd break the hold, then I'd break him, brother.
6: All right. uh, Very, very quickly. Very quickly. Oh, can you show us those 24-inch pythons? How about that? This man wants to see the 24-inch pythons. How about it? Oh!
1: Gene, look at him, baby!
6: Give me a break!
1: Hulkster, I gotta tell you... And what you're gonna do, Mean Gene, when Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Hart, and my maniacs run wild on the WCW, brother?
6: Well, I got a pretty good idea. These fans are pretty good sampling of what they expect from this fan. He has arrived, we've made it official. The Hulkster's here, Jimmy Hart is here. You fans have got what you wanted. This fan, part of the greatest wrestling organization in the world. Hulk, I gotta tell you, it is great to have you back where you belong.
1: Let me tell you something, Mean Gene. I'm going to get you a ringside seat the very first time I step in the ring of the WCW because it's going to give you a boost of energy,
6: and I might even get you as a tag team partner someday, brother. I'd like to do that again. Ladies and gentlemen, from all of us here, for the press conference at Disney MGM in Orlando, Florida, for Jimmy Hart, for the incomparable Hulk Hogan, and Eric Bischoff and our entire crew, Let's send you back to Atlanta, Georgia, as we take a look at this fantastic crowd on hand. Ladies and gentlemen, you're the—and you're nice. Wrapping up
2: 1994, it was this week that Brian Lee made his TV debut as Ted DiBiase's Undertaker. Um, and let me tell you something. I know over the years you have heard people say, ah, oh, this was the drizzling shits, it sucked, this, that, this— I have said this going back to my hotline days. I liked The Undertaker versus Undertaker feud. All right? I got a kick out of Brian Lee doing The Undertaker. All right? Was he a little smaller? Yes. Was he not as smooth? Yes. Brian Lee's biggest fault with doing The Undertaker is speed. When you wrestle, even if you're a power guy, You know, Undertaker, no matter what, you have to take a record that's on 33 speed and put it on what fucking 16 speed or whatever it is. Or better yet, you have a record that's on 78 speed. You got to slow it down to 33 speed. I think that's a better way to put it. Even though Brian Lee tried to wrestle slower, get up slower, move around slower, your instinct as a pro wrestler just kicks in sometimes and sometimes he would execute moves too fast but I recommend anybody out there who insists that Brian Lee as the fake undertaker was the drizzling shits I want you to seek out the July 4th 1994 episode of Monday Night Raw and I want you to watch Brian Lee as the fake undertaker wrestle Mike Bell he fucking does the old school on the rope walking the ropes and everything I applaud Brian Lee in that match. I fucking loved that match. I thought that was the best that he ever did as the fake Undertaker. So go check it out. I think you will really, really, you know, you'll have, look, it was it as good as The Undertaker? No. But as far as a clone, I thought he was really, really good. To go from one extreme to the other at that time, it was a big deal. 1995, memorable, memorable moment in ECW took place. It was this week in 95. I still remember them when this went down. It was fucking awesome. And I know a lot of my friends will definitely say the gangsters debut at ECW was the first exposure they ever had to watch an ECW and they were hooked. It's weird, But it was the gangsters. I mean, I've had other people tell me, you know, oh, I remember seeing Chris Benoit versus Al Snow back in 94. Oh, I remember when Public Enemy first came in. I remember when they first, when Shane Douglas threw the title down. I remember when fucking Magnificent Morocco and Snooker were wrestling for you. A lot of people I know going back then, different memories, different origins as far as being an ECW fan. But the one moment that I remember people telling me over and over and over and over again was when the gangsters showed up in ECW, destroying the public enemy. Gangsters had a cult following already because of USWA. And, you know, we actually played. Remember when uh, they were going to f- fight The Undertaker? Remember that clip we played a couple of months ago? Gangsters were fucking great. And I absolutely loved it. So it was this week in 95, they made their ECW debut, Destroying Public Enemy. And we had a controversial match that night as well. We had Sandman over Cactus Jack by knockout in a barbed wire massacre to retain the ECW heavyweight title. Originally, and when people say there was almost a riot that night, that's not a joke. People thought Cactus Jack won the title. But because Bill Alfonso, who was playing the referee, brought there by the State Athletic Commission, decided to not award the decision to Cactus Jack, you know, because of, you know, the the specific rules, the standing 10 count, Bob Wire, blah, 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 the place went apeshit. And there's been stories over the years that they actually had to put Bill Alfonso into a trunk of a car, because people were outside with baseball bats. what Look, did the ECW fans, were they going to beat someone up with baseball bats? No. Were they fucking livid when they were going to toss chairs and get angry at the? That's how good Bill Alfonso was. When I did breakfast soup with Mish this uh, past episode, we were talking about the um, Mount Rushmore of referees from my generation. My generation. And when I say my generation, I go from being a wrestling fan from 1979 to the present. All right? From my era. All right? I'm not saying modern era. I'm not... My era. From me watching as a fan, I put Bill Alfonso the Mount Rushmore because Bill Alfonso not only was a decent referee when he did it, but to transition to what he ended up being in ECW, even before managing RVD and Taz and Sabu and others, the guy was fucking hated. You, you could not believe the tension in the air when Bill Alfonso was, um, when he was doing the State Athletic Commission stuff in ECW. Holy fucking shit. The amount of heat that this guy got is incredible. He should be really proud. I mean, that, that guy does not get enough love, I think, sometimes from regular fans. He fucking reinvented himself three times. Referee the fucking referee staff athletic commission, let's fuck up ECW, and then to manager. And I thought he did a pretty damn good job at all of them. So, all right, 1996, WCW presents the Great American Bash. And the reason why I bring this up, there was uh, one of the matches on the card, Ric Flair and Arn Anderson versus Kevin Green and Steve Mongo McMichael. And, you know, it was a lot of attention at that time. Steve McMichael, obviously, was in WCW already doing commentating. Kevin Green, football player, very, very well liked. Kevin Green did not embarrass himself when he hit the the wrestling ring. And it was interesting to see Ric Flair and Andy Anderson taking on two football players. A lot of people were very skeptical at the time that the match would suck. It did not suck. But because Brian Pillman had abruptly left WCW, had the Hummer accident, signed with WWF at this time. They needed to replace Brian Pillman in the Four Horsemen. They went with Steve McMichael. And I have said this since it happened. I will continue saying it. I am not fucking going to ride that that, uh, easy bandwagon that people do. I had no problem with Steve McMichael being in the Four Horsemen. For the time it was, it was no longer 80s Horsemen. I had no problem at all Steve McMichael being in a horseman. He did not embarrass. He tried his fucking hardest. And I was fine with it. and no problem with it at all. So it was this week in 96 that they had that match. Steve McMichael would turn on Kevin Green. And, you know, they teased that he was getting a briefcase, I think with money, and Steve McMichael would join the Four Horsemen. I was fine with it. Not a moment happened on that event. This was Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. The big man, the medium-sized man, they showed up, and they were going to do an interview segment with Eric Bischoff. And now, if you've been following these episodes that I do, it was two weeks ago that Scott Hall showed up as uh, doing, acting as if it was Razor, got deceased and desist from WWF. It was last week that Kevin Nash was brought in. And they were teasing that they were going to show up at the Great American Bash and they wanted to know who the three people with WCW were going to put together to face them later on at Bash at the Beach. And this is how this segment went down. And keep in mind, because of the lawsuit that WWF was threatening to file against Scott Hall, WCW, and everything for doing the Razor Ramon mannerisms, and yes, I know some people have said he was doing it a Diamond Stud. You know, no, dis- no denying. But WCW and Eric Bischoff had to specifically ask them one very important question during this interview segment so they would make it perfectly clear to the WCW fans that neither Hall nor Nash were working for WWF anymore. So here's how it went down. Hall Nash, Eric Bischoff, Great American Bash.
11: For the last several weeks, since uh, May 27th, as a matter of fact, we've had a number of, let's just call them interruptions, on Nitro. I know, I know, I know. And if you were with us last week, I pointed out that tonight, these guys want an answer. We're prepared right now to give them an answer. They know who they are. I know they're here. Come on out, guys.
1: Let's let's everybody go to wall here at WCW. Let's do it. All right, I promise
11: you an answer. That's what you're here for. But we've got some questions we've got to resolve before we do all that. Right off the bat, I want to let you know, right here, right now, I was in the WCW offices, debated. You want a match, you want a war, you want it inside of the ring, you're going to get it. <laughs> I fell into the trap, Big man. Okay. okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I got some, a couple considerations here. Before we go a whole lot further, I will tell you, it'll be at Bash at the Beach, July 7th, in Daytona. I'm
8: free. I'm
11: but before free. we Can go any further, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we go any further, let's clear one thing up. Do you work for the WWE? No. How about it?
8: No.
1: Forget about the past, Chico. Let's worry about the future. We wanna know who your three guys are. Is it, is it the uh, Nacho Man? I don't think so. And what about, what about the immortal Huckster? You know, you tell Billionaire Ted to break out the money and get anybody you can because the big man
11: and the medium-sized man and our surprise buddy are gonna carve them up. I want to ask you a question right now. He's had his say. Who are they, man? Who are they? I can't tell you. I'll tell you tomorrow night on Nitro. That's the... De- you can't tell us?
1: You don't jack us around. Don't jack us around. Oh, for... What are they doing? Security! Get up there right now! Get security up up. there! Unbelievable! Please! Please Please get him! Unbelievable! This is sick! Yeah, Tony, I got it. They
6: should... Hold on, where'd he at? He's right down below us here. Oh, my God. We're, We're gonna need some medical attention right now. Yes.
11: Right now, ladies and gentlemen Big
1: boys They just left the building They get these guys off here Cut this thing off Get what, what Can we have some medical This is sick Eric Bischoff Of course, the host of Nitro
12: Executive producer And a WC. Please, would someone Get over to?
0: Another the stretcher.
12: Jesus
2: Wrapping up 1996, two little tidbits I think you get a kick out of. Uh, First off, any of you remember the hip-hop group House of Pain? Jump around, jump up, jump up, and get down. Jump, jump. Well, This week in 96, they had already had a song out called uh, Fed Up. It was performed by House of Pain and an artist called Guru. It was this week in 96, they filmed the music video for that song, and if you ever watch the music video, it takes place for the most part inside a bar. And if the bartender looks a little familiar, that's because it was none other than Perry Saturn. They hired Perry Saturn to be the bartender and they filmed it this week in 96. Also this week in 96, WWF signs Kevin Kelly, not the wrestler in nails, but the former backstage announcer. He does play-by-play as well for other federations still. And... Um, been that many years already and speaking that many years already one year later almost to the day 1997 WWF signs Michael Cole to a deal and um, within two weeks he would be on Monday Night Raw doing commentary it's pretty cool something else I want to get into from 1997 that a lot of people I don't even think know about and to me it was the beginning of the end of Doug furnace's in-ring career Philophon. Suffered some serious injuries as well But uh, Doug Furnace was the one that really got, got it the most Now what had happened was It was this week in 1997 WWF was touring Canada And um, the wrestlers had performed in Toronto And the following day they were on their way to Ottawa For another WWF event So there was a vehicle being driven by Sid Vicious And inside the car were Doug Furness, Phil Lafon and two cold Scorpio Now, there's been a couple of different reports over the years that have surfaced about this, but the one that everybody seems to talk about the most and seems to be uh, agreed about the most is uh, Sid was going about 100 miles an hour and basically took his eye off the road and went to adjust the sunroof. You know, summertime in Canada, okay, you want to open the sunroof. Well, he lost control of the car. Car flipped four times. Doug Furness ended up suffering a broken shoulder, had to go to uh, surgery. I think he also suffered some type of a concussion. Phil Lafon suffered a concussion, lots of cuts and bruises. Sid Vicious had some cuts, but he was pretty much okay. And uh, Too Cold Scorpio was, for the most part, just shaken up. But unfortunately, you know, if you actually look back at the career of Doug Furness following this accident, there really was not much of one. And uh, I think he's passed away since. I mean, I'm not blaming the accidents why he passed away. But, you know, you kind of think maybe chain of events, you know, not going to speculate. But now last week we talked about ECW being invaded by Jerry Lawler and the feud with USWA and ECW was on. It, It was it was beautiful at that time. Well, you know, keep in mind that during this time, you had uh, Vince McMahon, you know, having some interaction with USWA. You had Undertaker make appearances. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth. Papa Shang, a lot of wrestlers were going back and forth with USWA and WWF. So last week, we played the clips of Jerry Lawler invading ECW. This week, I'm going to share with you a promo that Tommy Dreamer cut on uswa following what went down
13: i fight for what i believe in i believe in pro wrestling i believe in ecw jerry lawler i don't believe in you the last time i was in memphis you sent the whole locker room out to stop me from taking you out but this time I got someone who swings a cane, drinks a beer, and smokes cigarettes. The Sandman, the hardcore icon, to watch my back. And he'll take out anyone who gets in our way. Do you think the people in Memphis are stupid, Jerry Lawler? How many times have you taken a WWF booking and not a USWA booking? How many times have you been on Night Monday Night Raw and never mention USWA, for all you fans that used to love USWA, for all you fans that love hardcore wrestling, come to the Big One Expo Center and watch me and the Sandman take Jerry Lawler and the USWA to a whole new level of the extreme and bring back hardcore wrestling.
2: Kudos to everyone who never paid any mind to the USWA-ECW feud at that time, that are now actually going back and watching a lot of this stuff, who sent me a lot of feedback over the last couple of days. Pretty cool. Definitely enjoyed a lot of your feedback on that. So, all right, let's get to 1998. And before we get into anything, you know, 1998, 1999, and 2000. Back to back to back Great American Bash was not good for Sting. Now the first one you may kind of disagree with because it was this week in 98 they had the Great American Bash. Sting would actually defeat the Big Show to win the WCW tag team titles. Yes, Sting on his own and as a result he could pick anybody he wanted as his partner. And you know, you look at, you know, some of the people who had creative control and who actually took over the book during those years, he kind of probably could put two and two together and f- say, "Who? I wonder who Sting would put, pick to be, you know, your immediate reaction is Lex Luger. It is, it didn't, no, 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 he picked Kevin Nash. So that was the least of the bullshit that Sting went through for three consecutive Great American bashes. Oh, man, I can't wait to get into the next two for 99 and 2000. But before I do that, I want to just share couple of things regarding 1998. Now, last week, I talked about Dennis Rodman no-showing Chicago Bulls practice and showing up at Nitro. Now, you got to understand the magnitude of this. And if you do some research and you see all the news, sports papers, mainstream news, nothing with wrestling, talking about what happened, I mean, it was major press. They were in the middle of the NBA Finals. The Bulls were facing the Jazz. You know, we always remember in wrestling the interactions between Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman. They're facing each other in the NBA Finals. So you have, you know, you're right smack in the middle of the NBA Finals and you have, you know, one of your most important pieces of the team miss practice and shows up a nitro. So that happened last week. Now, this week, one week later, the Bulls would, in fact, go on to defeat the Utah Jazz in six games in the NBA Finals. So all was somewhat forgotten about what went down. I mean, it ended up being history because that ended up being Michael Jordan's last game as a member of the Chicago Bulls. He would ultimately leave to try to get into baseball, and then he would end up going with the Washington Wizards, I believe it was at the time. So... This week in 98, the Bulls would in fact win. But since I got so much great feedback from all of you out there on the non-wrestling clip that I talked about last week from June of 82, we're gonna do it again this week. This week, we're going to highlight what went down in June of 1998 that has nothing to do with wrestling. And I actually do have two audio clips to share with all of you. Now, since there's been so much debate of who is the greatest basketball player of all time, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan or LeBron James? In my honest opinion, it's not even close, Michael Jordan, all right? And that's not to disrespect LeBron James. LeBron James is a solid number two as far as the greatest basketball players of all time. But Jordan You had to be a basketball fan watching Jordan his entire career and the moments. You can't just look at stats. You can't just look at, you know. No, you have to actually see how many important moments. And it was no different this week in 1998 when they won the championship. For those, even if you're not into basketball, you'll enjoy this. Here's the closing minute of the NBA finals from 1998, and a lot of it does feature Michael Jordan.
1: This is a big 20 second timeout for Chicago because it allows Jordan to get some rest before he goes to the free throw line
14: to try to knock down two. At the line, he's 10 of 13
8: from the floor. He's 13 of 33. Well, in this fourth quarter, Michael is only 2 of 8 from the fourth quarter, but what he's done is he's been able to get to the free throw line. He's 6 of 6, so he's shooting his seventh and eighth free throws of the quarter. They've got to find a way to be able to guard him without fouling him here.
14: He cuts it to one. Phil Jackson has told the Bulls during the last couple of timeouts let's try to take it to the rack, go to the basket not look for the perimeter shot Jordan ties it maybe the 20 second timeout was as much as anything just to give him a breather to gather himself for the crucial free throws 50 seconds Malone Cross-court, Stockton, a three. It's
15: there!
8: Now, Ron Harper is guarding Stockton, who cuts through. Pippen is gonna double-team. So, watch what happens now. Stockton's gonna circle through, and Antoine Carr dives down, so Harper has to play him. Now, on the skip-out pass, Stockton hits the three. What a huge shot to put his to put his team up three. Now this is what Karl Malone has to do. He has to find the open man, and Harper runs at him. And normally it's Stockton and Malone. This time it was Malone to Stockton. Ten
14: points for Stockton at age 36. He's played more NBA playoff games than anyone in history without winning a title. Now the
8: Bulls would like to get two-for-one possession here. Try to get a quick score get to the free throw line to give them two opportunities to one. Kippen into Jordan. Michael working on Russell. Brings them to within one. They scored within four seconds there. That's how quickly that changes now. Now it puts the pressure on the Jazz to score once again. Jordan with 43.
14: Malone is doubled. They swat at it and steal it. Here comes Chicago. 17 seconds. 17 seconds from game seven or from championship number six. Jordan. Chicago with the lead Timeout Utah 5.2 seconds left Michael Jordan running on fumes with 45 points At the end of the
8: game you gotta get it out of his hands Michael double back you're going to see he's in the play look where Hornacek is setting the screen Michael never clears so Malone doesn't see him he comes from the blind side and strips him so three crucial plays here by Michael Jordan now as he gets Brian Russell with a quick crossover look at Brian Russell slips and Michael pulls up and buries the shot to give him a one-point lead that may have been who knows what will unfold in the next
14: several months but that may have been the last shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. Watch Jordan's left hand here as he gives Russell the push.
8: Referee can't see that. Jordan frees himself up for a clean look. The greatest thing about Jordan is he has all the tricks. That's
1: why it's so difficult to guard him.
14: Stockton, Kornacek, Antoine Carr, Karl Malone, and Brian Russell. If they score, there's a game seven. If they don't, for the second straight year, they go out in six. Stockton. Harper's on him. Behind the screen. Harper got a piece of it. It comes off. The Chicago Bulls have won their sixth NBA championship, and it's their second
2: three-peat. Just a little tidbit. You know, Bob Costas... I know a lot of people don't like Bob Costas for various reasons. I think he's okay. I don't like when he gets political and stuff like that. If you actually... I don't remember which game it was from the NBA Finals, but there was a couple of uh, moments where he took some cheap shots towards Dennis Rodman. In fact, there was one point where Dennis Rodman and Karl Malone were scrambling for a ball, and Bob Costas on, you know, national TV is basically saying, you know, save that for your fake wrestling or something. He was just... He... Bob, what I think what happened with Bob Costas, and if you remember the, you know, that infamous off the record he did with Vince McMahon, Bob Costas was a longtime wrestling fan as a kid, but I think once it became the sexy smut that it was, it just he hated wrestling. '90s, mid late '90s, early 2000s, hated hated wrestling with a passion and took every opportunity he could to shit on it. Do I still think Bob Costas hates wrestling anymore? No, I don't. I think because the way wrestling is turned into these days, it's accepted. Come on. You have people like Man Cow sitting ringside. Who would have ever thought that would happen? But um, still, you know, I just remember watching those. I have all the games on video because I I was a big-time basketball fan from the 80s to around the early 2000s. Once uh, Latrell Sprewell was no longer on the Knicks, that's when I started fading away as far as a basketball fan. But uh, so there you go. That's the little non-wrestling clip for 1998. A couple other things that went down in June of 98. Stanley Cup Finals, the Detroit Red Wings defeated the Washington Capitals four games to none the ninety seventh Women's French Open. You had uh, Arancha Sanchez Vicario defeating Monica Seles seven six zero six six two. Video game fans, you remember Sega's Video Channel, Video Game Channel? It was the first ever video game on demand service, and it was this week in nineteen ninety eight they announced they were closing it down. I actually do remember that adapter, and you'd be able to get games online. It was. It's been that long, everyone. This week, Microsoft releases Windows 98, first edition. Also June of 1998, Seiko introduced the first uh, wearable smartwatch. It was called the Ruputer, R-U-P-U-T-E-R. If you go on YouTube, there's actually lots of reviews up there for the Ruputer. It was the first smartwatch, and it's actually pretty interesting. It only it only cost about three hundred bucks at the time, which yeah would cost more nowadays. But if you actually check it out, for those that are into like computer tech tech stuff, it had a sixteen bit, three point six megahertz processor, one hundred and twenty eight kilobytes of RAM. You know now we got thirty two gigs. Daily it's one hundred twenty eight kilobytes, one hundred twenty eight kilobytes of ROM. Um, it had a serial port in it and it would come with two lithium CR 2025 button cell batteries. Those are, I think the regular batteries like you put in like your, uh, your ba- bathroom scale and, and maybe your remote and your car, those little round batteries. I think even computers, regular desktops use that size battery. It would come with two batteries and the battery life was three months and it, oh, and it came with two megabytes of non-volatile storage. <laughs> It's been, it, things have changed dramatically since then. Uh, Sani Abacha, the president of Nigeria, died at 54. And as a result, uh, Abdul Salami Abubakar, uh, Abu Abu he succeeded him as the military president of Nigeria. Terry Nichols was sentenced to life in prison for his role in the Oklahoma City bombing. Don't Be Cruel, the second studio album by Bobby Brown is released And for those that are curious, you want to know what the number one song was in the the United States at that time? June 1998, this was your number one song. I didn't like the song. I, I played it for, you know, it was funny because my girlfriend's into like hip-hop and r and stuff like that, today's stuff. I said to her the other day, I was like, honey, you want to hear what song was uh, number one back in 1998 this week? And I played it. She's like, oh, that shit. <laughs> yeah, that was number one. Also, June of 98, we had the Comic Relief Benefit Show that was hosted by um, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Robin Williams, and Billy Crystal. And I was trying so hard to find some of the skits, especially the Chris Rock skit from that one. It was Comic Relief 8. Cannot find it anywhere. Movie released June of 98, The Truman Show starring Jim Carrey, Laura Linney, and Ed Harris. The TV sitcom Sex in the City premieres on HBO, starring Sarah Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall, Chris, uh, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon. Larry Flint, the uh, owner of, what is was it? Is it Hustler or Screw Magazine? Anyway, he married Elizabeth Berrios. They're still married to this day, and I was actually reading that uh, because he's obviously you know paralyzed from the waist down, he wears a penal implant in order to have sex with his wife. Home Alone actor Macaulay Culkin uh, weds Rachel Minor in a um, ceremony in Connecticut. At the time, they reported they were only 17, but I think they were 18. And as I mentioned earlier, the NBA Finals uh, took place with the Chicago Bulls defeating Utah Jazz in six games. So that is your segment for this week, 1998. Let me know what you thought about it. You know, we'll, we'll do another one next week and we'll pick a different year. And we'll get into some highlights of what was going down at that time. I know some of you out there said, oh, tell us what the price of gas was at that time or how much a quart of milk. That stuff you could Google. Maybe we will do that on certain episodes where there isn't a lot that maybe went down for a particular month, but I think it was enough to talk about this week. Now we go to 1999. Martha Hart, the widow of Owen Hart, files the lawsuit against WWE, the arena, the harness company, 13 defendants in all. And yes, the lawsuit has been settled and it's closed and uh, it's been many years since, but it was still a big story this week in 99 when she did go ahead and file the lawsuit in Jackson County, Missouri. And um, the interesting thing about it, I think a lot of people don't know, is that based on the, the rules for the court in Missouri, you cannot specify how much money you want to sue for. So the lawsuit only requests damages that are fair and reasonable because of what happened in the tragic passing of Owen Hart. In fact, I don't know if it's this episode's as well, if it's not this episode, it's definitely next week. But Martha Hart would in fact sue WWF once again. That would ended up being settled as well. But I don't want to get into the reasons why until we actually cover it. So we'll get into that shortly. Um, something else happened on TV back in 99 this week. And no, I did not forget about Sting in 99 and 2000 with the Great American Bash. Yes, I will cover those in a moment. And, you know, it's funny you look back on it, you don't hear many people like really emphasize the power of the wrestle crap that was involved, the magnitude of it with Sting on these both Great American Bash pay per views. You know, I don't know if it's because they, if they can't blame Vince Russo, that they just, you know, don't mention all that much. I, I know some places have talked about it. And it's pretty fucking hilarious when you actually see it. But for the casual wrestling fan, they will just shy over what happened with Sting on these two pay-per-views. And to me, this is almost the epitome of wrestle crap. But first, let's go one day later, Monday Nitro, back in 1999 this week. Certain blonde was sitting at ringside. Never mentioned her name, but they really teased it uh, enough that we knew who it was. It was none other than Rena Merrow, who you now know as Rena uh, Lesnar, Sable, She was sitting ringside for Nitro. And it was interesting because she was in the midst of the lawsuit with WWF. WWF was still trying to work out some type of an arrangement with Playboy since they were advertising her as Sable. This was right when Sable was making those vicious accusations about WWF. And the funny thing about it is Eric Bischoff on his WCW hotline a few days before was teasing that you know something was gonna somebody's gonna show up on Nitro I mean I don't remember exactly how he worded it but he was hyping on the hotline that you know somebody would be showing up and in fact Sable did and WWF was livid at that time because you know in the midst of this lawsuit and her being gone she's not allowed to be seen in in another wrestling con- company but she claims, ah, oh, I was just there as a fan. I bought a ticket, <laughs> this is and that. They showed her right close up on TV several times during that episode. In fact, do you remember last year before I started doing these officially? I actually played a little clip where Kevin Nash did a shout out to Sable. On an episode of Nitro, I think it was when Tori Wilson made her first appearance. I, I think was she missed Nitro or something like that, but still, you know, you, you WCW and Sable trolling WWE a little bit this week in 1999. So there you go. Now we wrap up 1999 with the first of two WrestleCrap moments for Sting. I kind of wish that this one would have happened in 2000 because to me this one was even funnier and worse than you know, the the Great American Bash 2000, but we have to do it in this order because this is the way it happened on TV. This week in 1999, Sting wrestles a Falls Count Anywhere match for the WCW TV title against Rick Steiner, who was the champion at that time. So they're having this brawl, and um, it leads to the back. And all I could say is, is that the match is abruptly over, the crowd booing like you can't believe, and it was just beyond wrestle crap because of the horrible, piss-poor, camera work, stunt doubles. I'll explain. I'll fill in the blanks after you hear the clip. I don't want to give it away first, but this is how the match ended between Sting and Rick Steiner for the TV title. He
1: may go, yes, he's gonna go with the scorpion deathlock right now. He's got him turn, he's in the middle of the ring. He's nowhere near the ropes. Yes, he oh, is. He is.
3: is. I thought he was a little further in the middle.
1: Well, from our vantage point, it looked like he was a lot further away, but it took about two or three crawls for Rick Steiner to get there to save him. Outside, remember, pinfalls count anywhere, including the broadcast location should they decide to come this way. Don't don't encourage them. They can't hear me.
4: How do I know if they can hear?
1: Head first, the safety rail. Head first again. Rick Steiner
11: retreating. Sting follows up the chase. That's what we
1: got here. There you see our internet location, wcw.com. Oh, how about a vertical suplex on the ramp? Did you hear that? Yes, I did. That was Steiner's back on the ramp.
4: Steve! Steve!
1: Steve! Not done yet. Watch out. Watch out, Mark Madden and crew. And you look like that Chris Jericho over there with them as well. Past the internet location on into the locker room area. Oh, black. Fight goes on. Hey, hey, take Abbott's backstage. Take Abbott, choking Sting. And there's Big Papa Pump. Whoa. What? Sting. Big Papa Pump turned the dogs loose on Sting. Sting, that's it. It's like the Doberman of... It's two Dobermans, Tony! Brutally attacking Sting on look, look at that one doing ripping his needle! Another one! That's a Rottweiler! This was all planned! Oh no! Security is coming in! Oh, fans, we had to take the cameras off of Sting and go to security! Oh my god! They'll rip them apart! They re- two Dobermans and a Rottweiler! Oh, my goodness. Oh, I pray and hope that they pull these animals off Sting. They got to.
2: Yes, I kid you not. They fucking unloaded Dobermans and Rottweilers to attack Sting. Just look at the photo in my synopsis, and it just gives you an idea how bad this was. What was so lame about it is that segment was recorded earlier in the day. Now, if you actually read people who have, you know, went step by step of what went down that day, you know, you'll see there's a still shot of a stunt double who's getting bit by the Doberman. And the stunt double has perfectly uh, put white makeup all over his face. You know that you're going to do this spot 10, 15 minutes into the match. Why didn't that stunt double have all distorted like half? Why did they make his makeup so so? perfect and what's again what's worse about it is they recorded this earlier in the day they could have easily edited an extra quarter of a second so you didn't see the white paint on the guy's face to show it was a stunt double what was even funnier is if you actually watch the end of this match just focus the entire time on Scott Steiner there's one point where Scott Steiner is like thrusting forward in the back get him get him and then they do another camera angle, and he's just there lounging, like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Hey, you got a cigarette. It's just fucking hilarious. Then there's another point where he's standing like right near where Sting is getting bit, and then in a blink of an eye, they show him in the back of the fucking arena with a Rottweiler. It was just whoever did the camera work honestly should have been fired because they you have to play devil's advocate with shit like that You're a production, a multi, multi, tens of millions of dollars a company, an entertainment company, and you do pre-recorded stuff. You have plenty of time to look at this over. Something doesn't look right. All right, let's see. And especially the part where you see the makeup on the stunt double. All he had to do was edit a quarter of a second more, and you wouldn't have seen that. Would the segment have still been laughed at? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see Scott Steiner thrusting forward and then all of a sudden he's just chilling out. hey, how you doing? Hey, you got, you got, a, you got a cigarette? Yeah. I mean, you, come on. Even fucking you and I out there could do a better job. It was so horrible. And the crowd didn't like it. But next year, it gets even better because now we go to 2000. Great American Bash once again. This time it's Vampiro versus Sting. And they're having this brawl. It's a human torch match. How you win the match is you set your opponent on fire. So what do they fucking do? They're having this brawl on top of a giant scaffold. Besides that, they're doing like sound. It sounds like thunder and lightning, kind of like Sting's crow gimmick. You hear this like, Special effects. We didn't need the fucking special effects. Maybe they did that because they knew the crowd was gonna boo, or they they just had bad feelings about it. They're doing lighting. They're trying to make it look dark and all this stuff. And they're brawling and brawling and brawling on the top. And then <laughs> I got once again. I gotta play the clip first, and then I'll fill in a couple of blanks. So here you go. Here's the closing moments uh, of Vampiro versus Sting in a Human Torch match. <laughs>
1: Sting, still covered in the liquid. Oh, God. Vampiro was reaching for the torch. Sting pulled his foot and pulled him down on the, pulled him down on the, the surface. I'm um, almost glad we can't see what's going on up there. Hey guys, i tell you what,
11: Vampiro has a lot of that gasoline liquid or whatever it is on him too. Oh no. He's got
1: the torch. He's got maniac. the torch. Sting is fighting for his life again.
11: So is Vampiro, so is Vampiro.
8: This is beyond description, this is this is insane beyond belief, psychotic beyond words. This is one of the most, de- it's the most dangerous moment oh. I've ever seen in professional wrestling. They are 40 feet above the ring. Sting is soaked in gasoline. There is an open flame
1: less than five feet from Sting. Back to his feet. Vampiro gets to blow in. The fans standing here in the Baltimore Arena. Vampiro's got the torch. They've killed the lights. Vampiro's got the torch. God no! Come on. And he's backing Sting away with it. He's back. Sting God, on Jesus, no. Sting's on no. fire. Sting's on fire. Oh my God. God oh my Sting. God. Sting's. Oh no. Oh, Sting's oh, on fire. Jesus. Oh my God. Oh. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, Jesus. Nothing more. Hell, there's nothing more. Get out! Get the camera off of him!
8: check come on, cut the music! Jesus!
1: God, Steve Borden is... He's a father, man. He's... Got a wife and get it off with the best I, I never I never thought that anything like this would ever really oh my god oh my god
2: now if you thought the year before with the dogs was bad when they set sting well here's basically how they did it they're at the top of the, uh, the scaffold area and Vampiro grabs the torch. All of a sudden, the, the lights go black for an extended second or two. And what ends up happening is is that Sting crowds, crouch, you know, crouches down so you can't see him. He's laid down because the cameras are looking up upward so you can't see it. Somebody's laying down. And as Sting is laying down, a stunt double gets up and we see for the most part ju- just his back. All right, and the stunt double, you know, it looks like Sting, and, you know, Vampiro sets him on fire, and you hear Tony Chavani Sting's on fire, Sting's on fire, but then the problem was the guy, the stunt double, has to jump off the top of this giant scaffold onto, you know, an area so he could be put out by the flames. Now, as soon as he hit... The, the canvas area, you know, the. It, I mean, it was padded. It looked like mattresses, so it was, it was a comfortable fall. It looked like as soon as he got hit, the fire was out. But you had Doug Dillinger and all of these, like, uh, referees, and they're spraying fire extinguishers more than you would spray for a fucking building that's on fire. All you hear, sh- you're looking at it, and the crowd is shitting all over it. But again, the funny thing about it is, When the guy jumped off, you do it in slow motion, you could see clearly that it's another stunt double. Now, look, do you expect Sting to really put himself on fire? You're going to risk yourself like that? No, but just remember, this is a year after Owen Hart taking that disastrous fall, that tragic fall. Now, nowhere near was this as risky, because the scaffold on top had plenty of room. You had people laying down. There was plenty of area. And no, I don't actually think Sting... I don't think the match should have taken place in the first place. You know, when the guy first got lit on fire, it actually looked pretty cool for a second, but then he jumped off. The crowd did not like it. You know, the if I would have played the extra three or four minutes that followed... You know, the, the, the announcer is like thinking that Sting fucking died from this. And still, the best part was, and you got to see this, they have him on a stretcher and they have the cover over him like you would do for a dead person. Why did they have the cover over the person on the stretcher? Because it wasn't Sting. Now, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been great since it was so dark if Sting could have somehow, like from the back. Of the scaffold climb down like behind the curtain and somehow get underneath that area of where the, the stunt double went through. And if they would have pulled Sting out and put him on a stretcher, I think it probably would have looked a little bit better. But when they put him on a the stretcher, they realized fuck we can't show his face. It's a stunt double. So they put like this blanket over him. And meanwhile, if the guys in heat and in flames, you you don't put a cover. That that reminds me, he has a very, very quick insurance story. And I talked about this, I think, once before we were talking about insurance fraud many, many years ago, all right? Now, back in, I'd say, the early 2000s, there was a big scandal in my neck of the woods that people were um, purposely committing insurance fraud with jet skis. There was a dealership that's no longer in business and you're more than welcome to look it up. Just look up Howard Beach, Queens, Honda, jet ski fraud, 1990 or early 2000s. You'll find the stories. They're all over the net because some people went to jail for 20 years over this. So what happened was there were people in the neighborhood that were doing insurance fraud on jet skis. Basically, what was happening is they had a whole bunch of people in the neighborhood that would finance a jet ski, no money down, get the jet ski, use it for the whole summer. And then when they didn't want the jet ski anymore, the dealership, for the most part, I think, would buy, buy the jet ski back from the customer. Even though the customer financed with no money down, the customer would get like $1,500, $2,000. And then that... Uh, dealership shipped the jet skis to like Dominican Republic or something, got money from them. But meanwhile, the customer filed an insurance claim saying somebody sold the jet skis. So not only does the customer no longer have to pay for a jet ski that they finance no money down, but they got paid from the dealership. The insurance company paid the bank who did the loan. Meanwhile, somebody in Dominican Republic, Hey, cool. Jet ski, jet ski, jet ski is riding a stolen jet ski. Everybody got paid. So me, I'm an insurance broker. I've been an insurance broker since 1998. So at the time, all of a sudden, I got customers coming in and, hey, how you doing? I want to get jet ski insurance. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I want to get jet ski insurance. So I insured a bunch of people. Then all of a sudden, the FBI shows up in my office like a month later. Uh, we got to talk to you about some jet ski pur- purchases, uh, insurance uh, policies you're written. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Now me, me I'm not a rat. I don't rat people out. But at the same time, I don't know what the fuck is going on. You don't mess around with the FBI. I don't care who's in charge of it. You know, fucking call me or anybody else. You don't fuck around with the FBI. So they came in. They wanted to see the policies that I wrote. And I just showed them the applications. And at that time, none of my customers filed claims. So, I did not have to worry. None of my customers did anything shady. So, the FBI, they're like, okay, you know, everybody's fine. I'm like, look, you know, my customers are not going to have problems, are they? You know, no, 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 no. We just want to make sure that there was no fraud here. Now, at that time, we didn't know what was going on. They came in, they saw, they left. None of my customers ever had a problem, except for one. About maybe three months later, it is now the winter time. I had a guy come in, want to insure two jet skis. Now, what I think happened in hindsight was he bought this around the winter, getting a good deal, planning on using these in the summer of next year and maybe doing the same thing, the fraud. But then once people, you know, started getting busted for it, he wanted to get rid of these jet skis as quickly as he could. So what happens is he buys the jet skis. He gets insurance with me about maybe a month later. He calls me up. He's like, you're not going to believe it. They stole my jet skis. Now, at this time, now I know, you know, shit's going on. I'm like saying to myself, okay, okay, yeah, I believe that. So the bottom line is, is that the guy ended up trying to commit fraud. But where he fucked up tremendously was because the dealership was already being investigated and they couldn't take the jet skis and fucking ship them on a, on a fucking train or wherever they do it, you know, outside the country or a boat. This guy had to get rid of the jet skis. He didn't want to get stuck financing, paying these jet skis. He was only planning on using it for, for, you know, the summertime. So he goes in and reports the jet skis stolen. What ended up happening was he found, through a friend of his, a warehouse in Brooklyn that they brought the jet skis to and they set them on fire. And what they fucking did was they put a canvas cover over the jet skis after they set it on fire so people would not see right away that it was jet skis on fire. They thought they would just see one giant ball of flames. But by putting the canvas cover over the jet ski, not only did it trap all of the heat, but it also took away all of the oxygen and, it, and the fire had nowhere to breathe or anything and it fucking put the fire out. So it actually, but the heat and everything still got trapped in there, but it fucking put the fire out. So the, the worst thing you do is you... So here you got fucking these officials on Nitro spraying and spraying and spraying and spraying it, spraying his fucking stuff. Meanwhile, the fire's been out for 10 minutes, and then they put him on a stretcher with the fucking canvas cover over it. If the guy was supposed to believe is, uh, was on fire and he's got heat on him and he could be melted and his skin could have burned, you don't put a canvas cover over the guy who's... Horrible, horrible stuff. And again, it surprises the shit out of me that this is one of the top wrestle crap moments that everybody ever brings up when it comes to WCW. I don't know. Anyway, that same pay-per-view, we had uh, the return of Bill Goldberg. They tried to turn him heel. For a little while, it worked because the crowd was chanting, Goldberg sucks and all that. But um, it just didn't get the momentum that I think WCW thought it would get. It's a shame. As I play at the beginning of the show, that roar after the show took place that I shared with all of you. hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Also this week in 2000, A&E's cable channel did a special biography on Hulk Hogan. I know a lot of you out there over the years have seen it. I originally was going to play some highlights from it, but there's nothing really earth shattering to reveal from there. But if you're not doing nothing and you just want to check out a good old biography on a wrestler, it's on YouTube, Hulk Hogan A&E 2000, June of 2000. It's it's enjoyable. I liked it at the time. I still like it now. And um, you might find some interesting little tidbits coming out of it. And look, in the continuation of the 24-7 rule and the hardcore title, it was this week on Raw that uh, Crash Holly defeated Gerald Briscoe to win the hardcore title. Then we had the skits where Gerald Briscoe regained the title back, and then uh, Pat Patterson turned on Gerald Briscoe and won the title back. And I did, this was my favorite time for the 24 7 rule. Absolutely loved it. Still to this day, it blows me away that WWE has not brought back that title in some way, shape, or form. You don't need to use chair shots. You don't need to use headshots. You could be very, very comedic about it, which was proven the battles in the airport. And I don't know if just WWE is just afraid of that they don't want to get do the work of getting permits and you know, I don't know. I just it surprises me that they haven't done more of this. 2001, about a year after, you know, this hardcore back and forth with Crash Holly and others. We had Test defeat Rhino to win the WWF Hardcore title. The reason why I mention this is towards the end of the match, we had the WWE debut of Stacy Keebler. Look at the outfit she's wearing. My God, my God, my God. 2002, I remember this so well, so much fun. And, you know, anytime I tell stories, it usually involves people that are alive. So people will back up everything that I say. In fact, even as a gag, I just put on social media copies of the legal letter that I got from WWF in 2005 threatening to sue me because of the ECW stuff with the bus trip. And that's when I went and bought the trademark for Eastern Championship Wrestling. I even got commended from the legal department telling me, you know, hey, you did everything the legal way, the right way, you could promote it. And I even asked her, is it okay if I do this? okay I do that? And instead of me getting thank yous and appreciation from some involved with hardcore homecoming, you know, because that Mike Johnson little bitch, he had to have the bus trip all for himself. I was like, you know, fuck you. Todd Gordon threatening to sue me for a trademark that he abandoned. Fuck you. But go back a couple of years, 2002, XPW is starting to arrange coming to the Northeast. I started working for XPW, and we're basically, you know, getting the feel for Philly and, you know, trying to figure out places that you could push the tickets and advertise stuff, see who was receptive to it. There were a lot of people that were against XPW coming to Philly. I mean, I remember Slash, as much of a cocksucker he was, we went to malls and all these other places for, for countless months trying to work out deals where we could sell tickets and things like that. You have no idea how much behind-the-scenes stuff, work was going on. But even before that, MLW had their first ever event in the ECW arena, they called it Genesis. And sitting, you know, three rows back was myself, Timmy Arson. God rest his soul. I get to shout him out later, which makes me happy. Put a tear in my eye. Myself, Timmy Arson, Matt Zombie, Brian Damage. was sitting ringside and we're watching this. Had a great time. It was cool to see Prince Nana who I actually was friendly with for years. And my apologies, Prince. not enough if you're hearing this for the credit card stuff. You know, it's, he didn't, there was no fraud. It was just, he uh, hooked me up with a credit card company that turned out to be the drizzling shits. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but it was funny because during a match, if you listen to it closely, the last time I saw it was about 15 years ago. I don't know if it's been edited out since, but when Vampiro had his match, I don't want to get into any, you know, behind the scenes stuff with it, but let's just say that Matt Zombie and Vampiro had a little bit of a friendship. And during the match, especially Matt Zombie and Brian Damage, more than anything, and I know Brian Damage still writes columns. You could ask him, he'll tell you 100% legit. We're chanting Oxy Cotton, Oxy Cotton, Vicodin, Vicodin, Percocet, Percocet. And at one point, you actually will see Vampiro do a smirk towards Matt Zombie's way. Like, all right, shut the fuck up. I get the joke, shut the fuck up. But it was funny, funny shit. Now, in hindsight, I kind of feel bad. But if you actually watch it, just listen closely to the crowd, you will hear "Chance that is us. Not proud of it. I kind of felt embarrassed, but still, it was was good. I still have some awesome photos that I took during that time especially some back and forth with uh, Shane Douglas and Steve Carino. That match was really, really good. So there you go. Now, um, not not good stuff. Not good stuff. Steve Austin, 2002. Um, A lot of people may forget this, but he walked out of WWE. Did not want to wrestle Brock Lesnar on Raw, the King of the Ring qualifying match, which we talked about last week on last week's episode, but we're now one week later. And Vince McMahon decided he was going to talk about it. They did a segment on WWF Confidential, WWE Confidential. Jim Ross talked about it. He Vince McMahon talked about it on Raw. And when you actually listen to the promo, because I'm going to share with you now, this runs 20 minutes long. What you're going to hear is segments from WWE Confidential You'll hear Vince come out at the beginning of the broadcast telling everyone that Steve Austin has quit and pay attention to the crowd because in the beginning, you could tell that the crowd probably didn't think it was legit, that it was storyline because they're doing the what chance to Vince. And I th- at one point, I think they, re- well, they definitely realized that this was not a storyline that Steve Austin legitimately quit and they stopped the what chance And you could tell that the crowd really, really understood what they were hearing was different. It was real. And then towards the end of the broadcast, they were teasing that Steve Austin did, in fact, show up. What the storyline was towards the end of Raw's episode, that Tony Guerrilla had told Vince that he's in the building. And Vince, towards the end, thought that the he that was being talked about was Steve Austin. So at the very end, and I remember this at the time when it went down, when, when they were teasing that Steve Austin was in the building, that's when we all started thinking, oh, okay, this is bullshit, this is bullshit, this is bullshit. But then uh, someone came out, and his promo actually is pretty legendary as well. So here you go, here's how it went down. This week in 2002, Steve Austin walks out of the WWE. And once you're done with this, it's not over. Regarding the problems of Steve Austin, something else took place. I think a lot of people forget that it was within one week of him walking out of WWE. Enjoy.
4: That's that Stone Cold, who's again, like I say, the most demanding, you know, of, of anyone I've ever worked with, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, sometimes rightfully so. Uh, and but at the same time, there's you know he he's reduced to simply you know. Uh, producing, I suppose, gold albums as to platinum ones at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know, to take your point of view, you know, whether or not uh, someone gets sour on the creative and then and, and can he take that and turn it into, uh, you know, something better. I think he can. I think Austin does have that ability. At the same time, you know, he, he needs some decent material to work with, too, so it's a combination of things.
1: It's WWE Rod in Atlanta, Georgia! Stone cold, Steve Austin did not show up.
4: Austin, for whatever reason, was hell-bent on not showing. He got on the plane and went home. He
12: took his ball and went home. And obviously, I'm pissed off. He was the lead performer advertised to be at that event in a major venue, and he didn't fulfill his obligations. He decided to go home. And that's wrong. I had a phone call from J.R.,
4: uh, who's in charge of talent relations uh, at about 10 o'clock, 10.30 Sunday night, informing me that Austin was not
12: terribly excited about his, uh, the creative that we had set for him on Monday. He uh, mentioned on uh, Sunday that, you know, he wanted things changed or he wasn't coming to work. And I said, you know, that's not the way you handle your problems, it's not the way you do business, it's not the way we do business. And uh, so I asked him. He talked to Vince, and he said no. And I said, "How come?" And you know, he just uh, there was just a lot of aversion there. He uh, he just was very uncomfortable about uh, talking to the owner of the company about his issues. He has never been in the past until the last few months. I then immediately called Austin on his cell phone uh, and
4: told him, no matter what hour you know it was when he got this message, to call me So about two o'clock in the morning, he called me. So that would that began my Monday. I went through the entire creative process with him, explained how this was good for him and good for the company, uh, and he said, "All right." so in any event, uh, not that I needed his approval, but it's always important when you're working with talent for them to buy into what it is you're trying to do, because they feel a lot
12: better about it. They feel a part of the creative process, and that was what I attempted to do and thought I had done. When I got to the uh, uh, Phillips Arena in Atlanta on Monday, uh, I was informed that uh, through our travel service, that he had made independently made a call and uh, booked himself and his wife uh, flights home. He tried to do this in a way that no one would even know that he wasn't going to be at the event. At that point, I started calling him again and left several messages, and finally got through to him, and I think he was boarding the plane because I heard the flight attendants talking with him, and "How you doing?" And I heard him sit in a seat, and so uh, you know we had a very frank conversation. Uh, he made a mistake. he screwed up, and he had no business going home. I did most of the talking in that conversation. Uh, the other conversations that he and I have had over these issues last two or three weeks, he's done most of the talking. And I'd, I got, uh, I'd listened long enough. He had done this once
4: before, and it, both myself and Jr. and others had the conversation. You can't ever walk off the job like this. That's the only unpardonable sin
12: perhaps that there is in our business, because fans are expecting to see you. I don't know why that uh, someone that could be uh, the biggest name in the history of sports entertainment, Say, I'm not going to come to work. I'm not, I'm going to turn my back on the people that have helped me because I'm pissed off. Because I'm unhappy. Because I just can't take it anymore. You win here as a team and you lose here as a team. But you don't just turn your back and say, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm going home. It'd be like John Wayne becoming a coward in a big fight. You never saw it happen. You'd never see it coming. And I didn't see this coming. And it hurt me. So, you know, most people probably won't keep it down about that because I'll be back on TV Monday night kicking ass because I love my job. We're there without Stone Cold. Would it be better if he was there? Yes. Stone Cold ain't going to be on Raw Monday night. Stone Cold ain't going to be on Raw again as far as I know.
8: Well, JR, I know this has been an emotional week for you. No more Stone Cold Steve Austin. At least that's the way it appears. We'll find out the real story next
2: do it
1: now, all right? Not now. Just
12: take it easy. No, man. Kevin Nassie has got a plan. What can that no mean? We need that has got a plan, JR. NWO plan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Uh-oh. here comes a man that, in a no-holds-barred matchup, one week ago tonight, regained complete ownership of the WWE and a real bloodbath against the Nature Boy and Ric Flair. Quite briefly, thanks for the next big thing, Brock Lesnar.
8: Well, that might have been the greatest night in the history of the WWE, but this has also been the most controversial week in the history of he WWE head and Welcome, the chairman of World Wrestling Entertainment, <laughs> Mr. McMahon.
15: Finally, Vince McMahon has come back to Rome.
12: We're about to get the real story, Jr.
4: Ever since last Monday night, the question that seems to be on everyone's mind is, is Stone Cold Steve Austin really gone? Sadly, sadly, the answer to that question is yes. Wow. I know I don't like it any more than you do. The other question on everyone's mind is, One day, will Stone Cold Steve Austin be back in action in World Wrestling Entertainment? That's the question. I sincerely hope so. Quite frankly, I really don't have the answer to that question, and I'll tell you why. You see, Austin has a lot of explaining and a lot of apologizing to do before he comes back. Austin when he walked out last monday it wasn't the first time he walked out on us it happened once before the day after WrestleMania, when austin packed his bag without notifying anyone he simply packed his bag and went home he was scheduled to be on raw just as he was scheduled last monday austin stayed home for approximately two weeks claiming he was burned out all right, we can understand being burned out. We all have been burned out from time to time. And given the enormous contributions that Austin made and has made to our company, all was forgiven. Two weeks later, Austin came back to work. Nonetheless, in my mind, Austin owes an apology for walking out to every superstar in that locker room. Austin owes an apology to the company he helped build. Austin owes an apology to each and every one of you for walking out on you. I don't know if Austin's ever gonna come back to action or not.
12: I can tell JR that the fans want him back.
4: Last Monday, Austin was in town. He was scheduled to be on Raw, as I said. Any number of us attempted to speak to him on his cell phone he refused to take our calls until finally after repeated attempts austin took one call that was from that man right there austin's friend jim ross jr pleaded with austin since you're in town don't walk simply just come to the arena sit down and discuss your grievances as a man Austin didn't do that. J.R.'s plea fell on deaf ears. And quite frankly, Austin's actions, both personally and professionally, are certainly uncharacteristic of the man we all know. Nonetheless, Austin, as an adult, should and will be held accountable. We have to move on as a company without Austin and move on. We will. We have to. We have no alternative. We'll develop new stars, new matches, new concepts. Even this Sunday's King of the Ring winner will automatically face the champion at SummerSlam. Austin is gone, but clearly Stone Cold will never, ever be forgotten. I know that, in Austin's heart, he wishes every superstar in the locker room well. He wishes all of you well. I know Austin wishes even the company that he helped build well. So, Steve, tonight, wherever you are, I'd like to say on behalf of all the superstars, some of whom are riding your coattails for the trailblazers you made, I'd like to say, Steve, to you on behalf of the company that you helped build, on behalf, Steve, of every single fan that you entertained throughout the years all over the world, on behalf of all of us, Steve, I would simply like to say thank you. Thank you, Stone Cold. Thank you. For the memories.
12: And we are back live, ladies and gentlemen, here in Oakland, California. Mr. McMahon has made his way to the ring, and apparently, from what we are led to believe, Stone Cold Steve Austin is arriving, or is about to arrive, here in this arena. Let me have a beer. Let me have a beer.
4: Let me have a beer. Come on. Vince wants a beer. Come on, you idiots. Stone Cold wants a beer. They throw 50 of them up there. This beer is not for me. It's for somebody else. I'm told Stone Cold is in the, in the building. So, Austin, I'm going to give you the opportunity to come out here, say whatever it is you want to say to me. More importantly, say whatever it is you want to say to the audience. Yeah those cameras rolling.
12: We're live. Anything can happen Come here. Come on, Austin.
4: I want to make this audience wait any longer than they have all night.
12: What? Now what? Tony Guerrero. Austin
3: stoned it. was Tony Guerrero. The he
4: you kept talking about is not stone cold, then who the hell is the he you were talking about?
1: To say. Oh, look out, Vince. Be careful.
12: God, this is amazing.
6: on Rock. He feels it. But what's he doing on Rock? Again, finally, a smile comes back to the face of Mr. McMahon. Uh-oh.
12: There are no love balls between The Rock and Mr. McMahon as we all know. And this is a moment.
1: Finally, The Rock has come back to
15: Oakland! And
1: The McMahon, what's wrong? You look a little surprised. Were you not expecting The Rock? Were you expecting Steve Austin? Did you think that Steve Austin was just gonna walk down that ramp? Is that what you thought?
4: As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter
15: what you thought! No, no! Get The Rock, all right? Eat back!
1: Because you see what you're bound to realize it was not Stone Cold Steve Austin that came walking down that ramp. No, no, no. It was a living, full Brahma bull. Jabroni eating, pie beating, eating. The Rock says he's walking fast, whooping ass. People chant The Rock! And soon as a rock as a people's champ, and he came out here to address the people and only the people. You've got 15 seconds to get out of this ring starting now. One.
12: Vince. Now the rock show. Sounds to me like.
1: Oh, and before you leave, take this with you. Oh, look
6: at him! Oh. Mr. McMahon took exit from his own ring. What do you expect? Be
1: and we all know The Rock is supposed to be on SmackDown. We all know that The Rock wasn't supposed to return until next month. But considering what happened last week, The Rock will be damned if he didn't come here the very first opportunity he had and speak to each and every single one of you live. This is live.
15: Anything can
1: happen. Okay, five years ago when The Rock first walked into this company, He had one idea, one idea and that idea was really simple and that was just to become the absolute best this industry has ever seen. And I will continue to work my ass off to make sure that happens. Because you see, The Rock says this, that's the very same passion, that very same fire that I have in my eyes is the very same fire that I see every time I walk in the back of that locker room, every single time. I walk into a Raw locker room. Every single time I step into a SmackDown locker room, all those guys are here because they want to be here. That's right. Everyone on SmackDown, all those guys on SmackDown, they are there because they want to be there. They get in this ring, they bust their ass. You love them for that, and they do it because they love to do it.
15: You gotta love it.
1: So The Rock says this, if there is anybody in the back, I swear to God, I honestly mean this, if there's anybody in the back that does not want to be with this company, if there's anyone at SmackDown that does not want to be with this company, then just like the slogan says, you get the F out. Oh man! Get the F out, JR. is on a roll. And you see, Vince McMahon, if you're really serious about moving on, well, The Rock will do you one better. Not only does The Rock want to move on, but he wants to move up. So The Rock will tell you what, The Rock is scheduled to return July 11th on SmackDown, but guess what? News flash, change of plans, this Sunday, The Rock, King of the Ring! What? Oh, God, The
15: Rock! The Rock
1: and the King of the Ring, King! What's he got? This Sunday, The Rock, back to the King of the Ring! Sunday. You see, it's really simple. I've got WWE in my blood. The Rock was born WWE. The Rock goes back history with the WWE. Which, you know, it's really simple, it's like this. 50 years from now, when The Rock is 80 years old, when The Rock has to put in the people's dentures, he's gotta use the people's walker to come walking down that ramp, just like that. The Rock will still step right in the middle of this ring and say, just ring it. Rock has WWE in his blood from his late grandfather. My grandfather, the late high chief Peter Mybeer, who started his career right here in the Bay Area. (laughs) To my dad, my dad's soul man, Rocky Johnson. All the way down to the most electrifying man in sports and entertainment. The fact of the matter is this. Austin can take his ball and go home But as far as the is concerned as far as I'm concerned This this is home has been. We thought we were going to get the snake but who cares? We got The Rock, they are!
6: The Rock has shocked the world again. He has come home, as you heard him say, perhaps the most poignant remarks we've ever
12: heard of WWE Superstar make. The Rock is back home, and ladies and gentlemen, The Rock is on his way to the king.
2: The problems were not over by a long shot during this time in 2002. Not even a week after what you just heard took place, police officers in San Antonio were called to the house of Steve Austin and Deborah. They were married at the time. And she, when the police showed up, she had a welt on her face. She had bruises on her back. She told the cops that Steve Austin had hit her several times. And Steve Austin fled the scene. And I think what a lot of people may have forgot was that there was a warrant uh, eventually issued for the arrest of Steve Austin. He would turn himself in to police, but that didn't take place for almost two months. So just if you weren't a fan around that time, 2002, just picture Steve Austin abruptly walking out and at the same time being accused of assault. You know, the, the police officers did verify the bruises and everything else, and he's missing so it was a pretty serious day. I mean, look—you look back on it now. Thank God, there's been no other claims, you know, since then. Yes, the infamous interview I did with Tess Broussard—I'm still friends with her personally. Um that caused him to not only fucking ban me from any access to his social media, but he is irate of the interview that I did with her at that time. You know, we'll, we'll revisit that interview one day, but let's be honest, since then, there's been no alleged incidents on behalf of Steve Austin. I have heard nothing but good things about the guy, and people do learn, people do grow, people do, you know, make for their mistakes. You know, we don't know you know, what stress the guy was. I'm not saying that stress or painkillers or drinking or anything justifies any of this. But still, over the years, I mean, he has turned his personal life, it seems, around. You can't discount that. But still, since it is news and since it is history and since this is a history show, we're covering it. So to wrap up 2002, another little incident went down any of you remember Jim Cornette spitting in the face of Ed Ferrara? Well, if you don't remember what happened, I will let Jim Cornette tell it to you in his own words. Here is Jim Cornette talking about the infamous spit in the face of Ed Ferrara that took place this week back in 2002.
9: This goddamn inconsiderate weezer. I was going down to do Bert Prentice's TV show, and me and Scott Hudson doing commentary, right? <clears throat> well, Bert calls me one day and says, well Jim, you know they're starting that TNA thing up, because he does it in Nashville, you know. They're starting that TNA thing up, and, and uh, the TNA announcers are going to be here at TV. They want to do some practice. Well, I thought he was asking me to step back. Yeah, I said, oh, sure Bert, no problem. That's your main gig. I'm just doing this for a lark, so, you know, I'll stay home. No, no, no excuse me, I want you to do my TV. I just want you to know they're going to be in the back of the building practicing. Why are you telling me that? Well, one of them is Ed Ferrara. I said, oh, well, Bert, I'm going to have to fucking punch Ed Ferrara. He said, well, I knew there was heat, and I'm wondering if you could not fucking beat him up because, you know, I said, all right, Bert, I love you. You're great. you been nice to me. That's your main gig. I won't hit him. But we go down there, Now I never promised him that I wouldn't tell Farrar what I thought of him. And I don't think very fucking much of him. For one thing, he was sucking Vince Russo's cock all those goddamn years. He fucked Vince McMahon. Well, he didn't really fuck Vince McMahon, he just left with the guy that fucked Vince McMahon. But also, he's a goddamn embarrassment at the fucking business, and besides that, the main thing was Jim Ross. So, we're there, and about 40 guys in the back, and I'm Dusty Rhodes, I hadn't seen in ages, talking to Dusty, hugged his neck, you know, talking to Ronnie Gossett's there, and you know, just a bunch of people I know. And in walks this fucking lame-ass goddamn prick with fucking dreadlocks. He looked like a white Bob Marley with a big fucking sand ass. You know one of those fucking things you punch, they kind of bobble, you know, big... And if I can talk about a big ass, it's big. And I saw him, and I was like, And he looks at me and he smiles. Last time I'd seen him was when I was in Connecticut and we were all writing together, you know. Actually, he was carrying Vince Russo's papers. Vince Russo was attempting to write and I was attempting not to fucking cut my throat being around Vince Russo. So he comes up to me with his fucking hand out. So I walked up to him and I said, Hi, Ed. And this is not verbatim because I said a lot of words real quick. But I said, I just want to tell you what a fucking miserable fucking piece of shit you are, you goddamn no good cocksucker, for fucking making fun of Jim Ross's Bell's Palsy. Now, we'll digress here. Here's a fucking guy who's given 30 years of his life to the business, Jim Ross, who is the best announcer, maybe asterisk Gordon solely, but who's the best announcer now of modern times, who is a workaholic, who gives his life to the business, who loves the business, And here this little fucking prick comes along from writing Duckman, or whatever the fuck he did in California, and took two wrestling classes at Slammer's Wrestling Gym, and thinks he deserves a goddamn spot in the wrestling business, and goes on national television and makes fun of a guy's... not He wasn't doing fat jokes. He wasn't doing goddamn bad hair jokes. He wasn't doing ugly jokes. He was making fun of a goddamn disability, a disease, a fucking paralysis of this guy's face that almost cost him his career, and he goes on television and makes fun of it, he's the most disreputable, miserable fucking piece of shit human being that's ever breathed there, in my opinion. And I felt someone should tell him so. So I said, you, you fucking miserable piece of shit, for making fun of Jim Ross's Bell's Palsy, I want to tell you that you're a goddamn cocksucker. Fuck you, you fucking miserable asshole. And he's like, Oh, really? I said, yeah, really. I said, Jim Ross has more talent in his little finger than you got in your whole stinking body. It's a goddamn shame you ever got in the fucking wrestling business to begin with. And fuck you, fuck you, fuck you in the ass. And he's like, oh, really? Well, I said I wouldn't hit him, but I didn't say I wouldn't spit on him, so I hopped to and I spit in his fucking eye. And I said, now, the parking lot's 15 feet that way, you little cocksucker. You want to do anything about it? I don't know that I can whip him, but I was willing to try, whereas he didn't even have the goddamn balls. If you took Ed Ferrara's fucking nuts and you fucking threw them into a goddamn drinking straw, they'd look like a kernel of corn rolling into a storm drain. He's a goddamn cowardly, miserable fucking prick. He had the chance to fucking defend himself. He had the chance to fight me, and he wouldn't do it. Not because I'm goddamn King Kong or Godzilla, because he's a ballless, nutless, cowardly, yellow bellied fucking prick. And I spit in his fucking face, and I asked him to go outside, and then people started coming over, and he wiped his face off, and he said, I've got too much respect for all the people here. I said, You don't have any goddamn respect, you fucking ass lick. That's why we're having this conversation. Fuck you. <laughs> And he fucking went off in the back of the building, and I never saw him again. I did the television show. He fucking played with whoever's dick he was playing with that night, and I haven't seen him again. But I felt like somebody had to tell him if you fuck with a friend of mine, I learned this from my mother and my father, and a lot of people I've been around and I respect. If you fuck with a friend of mine, then you're fucking with me. It wasn't about somebody didn't do a job for me, or somebody didn't pay me back this money, or somebody didn't fucking give me interview time, or any wrestling pissy ass bullshit. He made fun. Of a person who I respect and who's been a friend to me. He made a fun of their fucking disease, their disability that almost cost him their career. And I think he should be run over by a goddamn 18-wheeler in the fucking street. And
2: fuck him. 2003, and we got about five audio clips left. Yeah, we've already burned through 20, <laughs> believe it or not. Time flies when we're having fun. This week in 03... NWA TNA, AJ Styles beat Jeff Jarrett and Raven in a three-way for the NWA World Heavyweight title. 2004, Asuka makes her pro wrestling debut. She debuts for the Major Girls Fighting A to Z promotion in Tokyo, Japan. She wrestles under the name Kana with a K and loses to Leona, L-E-O-N-A, to Leona. 2004, Rey Mysterio Jr. defeated Chavo classic at the smackdown taping to win the wwe cruiserweight title and this was a big deal at that time because earlier in the day we thought that chavo classic was released we were also wondering what's going to happen with the cruiserweight title it ends up that chavo classic works smackdown wrestles ray for the cruiserweight title and loses to ray following smackdown he was officially released Reason why he was released was because he had missed a couple of house shows when needed as Cruiserweight champion. Uh, Behind the scenes, Chavo Classic was very annoyed at the recent storylines that were being thrown his way, trying to do a lot of comedy with him. At one point, they uh, wanted him to come out dressed in women's underwear. And when he got released, take notice that Chavo Jr. and Eddie did not... Fight it, defend it, stick up for Chavo Classic. And finally, when he did get released, he claimed that the reason why he missed those house shows is because he was kidnapped and drugged. I don't think anybody believed that, so there you go. 2005 ECW presents One Night Stand for the Hammerstein Ballroom. It was absolutely awesome. I mean, it was just an uh, one of the most popular WWE pay-per-views of all time I mean the first ECW one night stand was really really a load of fun to see and witness 2006 I think took it to a different level because of what went down with RVD and John Cena and a few other things and yes we will highlight that match momentarily but before we do that let's talk about 2005 this was ECW's Rebirth in the WWE. Yes, this is before their TV debuted one year later. This, keep in mind, was the same weekend as Hardcore Homecoming. So there was some ECW talents that did not work this show. But in case you want to hear some uh, of the match results that will bring back some memories, the Dudleys over Tommy Dreamer and the Sandman. Mike Awesome over Masato Tanaka, which was excellent. Chris Benoit over Eddie Guerrero. Sabu over Rhino, Rey Mysterio over psychosis, Super Crazy over Tajiri and Little Guido in a three-way dance, Lance Storm over Chris Jericho, and they had little skits and everything as well. Um, it is really, if you've never watched it, watch it. The crowd makes it even that much more fun, but the match between RVD and Cena one year later just took it to a whole different level. But before we get to 06, Let's close out ECW 05 One Night Stand with a little promo that Paul E. cut at the very beginning of the show.
1: the high road, Paul. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hide your
15: wives,
13: it's
5: Edge!
1: <laughs> now Edge, I know nobody with a written promo has the balls to say this to you but I have two words for you Matt freaking
15: Hardy
2: At the very beginning, he really was very choked up, very teary eyed. I mean, it was just, it felt like he was finally getting the acknowledgement that he uh, felt maybe not consciously, but subconsciously deserved for all of the years of hard work, losing sleep, stress, just all the problems that he went through trying to make that company succeed. It was great. It really was. And, It was awesome as a lifelong ECW fan myself to see it celebrated. One year later, obviously, things would take a a weird turn, I guess you could call it. But um, before we get to 06, it would only be fair that I mention this as well. It was this week in 05 that we started the quote-unquote summer of punk. This was CM Punk's final, um, you know, I don't want to say final spots Final, you know, run in Ring of Honor. Maybe you could call it that. CM Punk was heading to the WWE. And CM Punk, they were teasing it as his final match at Ring of Honor. They were really hyping it up big time. And remember, Ring of Honor, in a lot of ways, was always trying to capitalize on events that WWE would have in the same areas. All right. You would see WrestleMania is a perfect example of that. So we have ECW weekend, you know, the hardcore homecoming, one night stand. They, they're having death before dishonor. And the difference is, is that they did it in Morristown, New Jersey. So I think they would have drawn excellent anyway. But, you know, having these other events, you know, in the air at the time, I think helped them as well. But it would end up that CM Punk would defeat Austin Aries to win the Ring of Honor world title. So the idea that that was his last match was, was a little bit of a tease. And he would go on to hold the title for about two months. A lot of little controversies at the time. Didn't want to defend the title. Was trying to work around. He even signed his WWE contract on top of the Ring of Honor world title. And um, he would then, after all of this, go to WWE. So for the next couple of months, for CM Punk fans and Ring of Honor, it was truly the summer of Punk. So now we get to 2006. Two things happened with WWE and ECW. First, the highlight. Um, Well, you know, they're both highlights for me. I know for a lot of people, they're like, what the fuck? But first, let's talk about it. ECW one-night stand returns to the Hammerstein, New York City, for the second year in a row. Now, you know, the two matches that made it for me was Mick Foley, Edge, and Lita over Terry Funk, Tommy Dreamer, and Bueller. I mean, it was just Extreme Rules. I mean, just everything that went down in that match was hardcore. It was brutal, and it was entertaining as fuck. And it was cool to see Beulah back. Um, but the match that people will always, always talk about is Rob Van Dam defeating John Cena to win the WWE Championship. Extreme Rules match. Now, after these one-night stands, WWE would start doing an annual Extreme Rules pay-per-view that is still going on today. But this week, ECW One Night Stand in 2006 was important because this was right before the launch of their TV show on Sci-Fi, And that would take place this week as well, but let's just do one at a time. First, I wanna give you audio highlights of Rob Van Dam versus John Cena. Now I'm not gonna lie to you, this audio runs about 20 minutes. It is the second longest clip. For this episode I was going to edit it down to 10 minutes But the crowd made it so fun To listen to That I really had a hard time Editing it down even further Now some of this is edited But it gives you just the overall scope Of the match itself How the crowd reacted to it And it's just one of my favorite Moments ever In WWE So enjoy (coughs)
1: John is playing with them right now. Has yeah, yeah, yeah. have you ever seen anything like this? Uh, toilet paper, paper now <laughs> being thrown at Cena. Toilet paper! Uh, he doesn't belong here. By the way, those aren't that is toilet paper. TP, as they say in the street. <laughs> TP is a, yeah, it's a street word. That's a street word? Oh yeah, street uh-huh. <laughs> T P, okay. Van Damme's loving it. he has got the 12th man, or well, maybe. Well, 2,500 of them. You gotta wonder if this is gonna have an effect on John Cena. It's mean, got a red space in his head, you know what I mean? Got to. I don't care who you are, Taz, it's gotta get to you. Throw toilet paper at you. There is a big fight atmosphere here at ECW One Night Stand for this historic matchup. The WWE Championship being defended in an ECW ring for the first time ever. This is going to be a hell of a match. Uh-oh, uh-oh. You can't you can't you can't I'll, I'll tell you what, this audience Oh hold on! on, on cover, suplex, one count only. Wrestle. This audience just might be you getting the Cena. There's no doubt. Listen, you, you get that kind of chance directed after the you senior. Can't senior, senior move. you can't wrestle Cena Responds with a wrestling move—a cradle suplex. I I not want to fall to the trap of trying to answer these ECW fans! I know, I gotta tell you, Cena can't wrestle, it. he sure as hell can fight! He's a tough cat, I'm telling you, but Van Damme! Oh man, in my opinion, I, I'm going with Van Damme here, I'm rooting for him all the way! seven! There's no doubt, this, this hostile ECW crowd is definitely getting to the WWE Champion! Oh! A, a Man, this is the insecurity, but Court Concey in the face of the outpost. She's get his rear end back in that ring. He might be better off with Van Damme than this rabid audience. Look at this. Bam! By the head, ahead, man. Upside your head. Almost like a mule kick in midair by Rob Van Damme. In comes the WWE Champion, John Cena. And it it's nose-to-nose champion and challenger talking smack. I'll tell you, I don't know if uh, RBD wants a brawl with Cena and mix it up with him. We're gonna see if the Cena could throw hands. Asking can Rob, though. I'm not sure if RBD wants to trade fists, though, with John Cena. is unbelievable. It's phenomenal, man. oh Down goes the WWE champion. Nice power. Oh, a slam. We oh, cover. That's the other thing that Cena does have. Power. Very strong, strong athlete. Uh-oh. Oh, close line. Rob Van Damme all the way to the outside. You can hear Our audience doesn't like What Cena's doing in there It's <laughs> a new chance I'm hearing it Wait a minute, so John Cena's gonna respond John Cena on the top turnbuckle Oh! John Cena drops the hammer from up top well, I don't think I've ever seen Cena do that before That's definitely no, on, not uh... the same old well, no, SOS, another one TP-SOS yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh, oh! Cena trying to get a little Rugged and hardcore moves some furniture out there. Well John Cena can't fight, Taz. We've seen that. I know that. And that's what it's all about. The WWE Championship. But he better be careful, Cena. Throwing body parts. I mean, you know, because Van Damme will come with those feet and those legs and kick Cena's head off. She's gonna watch himself. Oh. John Cena trying to oh. I was about to say Cena has to try to adapt to the ECW rules as Van Damme out of nowhere. And How the hell it? do you adapt to a moonsault press on the outside?
2: I don't know, you move.
1: Thanks. <laughs> you better, you better adapt. once you're gonna leave New York without your championship. This isn't good for Cena. Van Damme now bringing that table in the ring. Lord knows what Van Damme's got in mind for Cena with that table. Big-time support for Van Damme in his house. Bob Van Damme setting up that table in the corner, that does not go well for the WWE Champion. Ooh. The best of the business after this. Ah. Come on, Rob, ah. get to those rocks, man. Hang on, Rob. The WWE ah. champion with the STFU ah. locked on Rob Van Dam. Why the hell did Cena pull that off? Ah. Out of nowhere. Listen to this crap. He's got, he's got it. Come on, Rob. I don't know if he's gonna make it. He's pulled out. Oh, hold oh, wait a minute. The oh, three's getting more of that stick here. Jeffrey John Finnegan exerting his authority a little bit. Oh, CCW rules. Oh, CCW rules. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, 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 oh. John, no, don't do that. Oh. The referee, Van Dam goes up top and gets caught and crushed by the WWE champ. Hostile situation. Cena's picking up his game. I hate to admit it, but by golly, he's doing it. Look at this. Superplex. Referee John Finnegan, man, been a little too passionate, a little too biased towards ECW. Put his hands on John Cena. Oh, he's out cold after the clothesline by the WWE champion. Oh. Nobody had any idea that Cena could get this extreme and this hardcore. Especially in this hostile environment. Who in the hell thought that WWE John Cena had it in him?
15: Uh-oh.
1: Rob's in trouble. Watch out, Rob. Watch Trump, out, man. No! Oh, God. Oh, man. Wow. Silencing this crowd. John Cena, Joey. John Cena has taken out this hostile audience out of this game man, out of this whole field. What the hell is Cover, that? here? Come, wait a Nick Patrick. Go it's to over. Go. It's yeah. over. Oh, oh my God, God. man! Damn, gets the left shoulder up, Tess. Another, got another referee. This time it's Nick Patrick of WWE SmackDown. Yeah, okay, why, why is he going to SmackDown? Oh, hey. I guess we gotta get some referee in it to get some control. Oh. Here we go. Oh, no. If you coming up, oh, Rob no. Van Dam holding on for dear life. Oh what's over? Oh, oh my god! Wow! What the hell? What the hell is that? Oh. Oh. Oh, what the hell? was that? a What the hell was that? Oh! oh. 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 the number one contender for Cena's... This- Wait a minute, Edge! Edge spearing the WWE Champion, John Cena, to the table! Where the hell did he come from? I- I'm speechless! Come on, Rob, go with Rob Hill. Capitalize. We'll take it. Go, Rob. Don't Come be on. proud, Rob. Go for it. Do it. There's no rift though. Van Dam up top. We need a rift on it. Go. Ah. Rob Van Dam. way it'll happen. I mean, Edge and, and Hayman coming out here. The bottom line of it. Finally happened for RBC. Oh,
15: yeah.
2: So now we go a couple of days later, 2006. And look, anybody that goes back to me in the hotline days in 1997 knows You know, I started out doing a solo hotline on my own. Then I started working with uh, a couple of guys, Joey 924, Black Moses. Believe it or not, Kevin Castle was never on my hotlines. He was on it as a caller, but he was never a host. But it started off with me solo. Then it was me, Joey 924, and a few others. Then I got involved with the Blackhearts. Mad Zombie Brian damage, and we were very good friends with Timmy Arson. Timmy Culkins, you know him primarily as the ECW zombie. And he was a personal friend of mine. He added his insurance with me. His girlfriend was a sweetheart, one of the nicest men that you would ever have met in wrestling. It was so frustrating to see how he was treated in some wrestling companies, especially USA Pro Wrestling. I actually, at one point, he was expressing some frustration publicly and they wanted to turn like a little bit of uh, staged animosity between him and Homicide into a storyline. And I had pushed to Frank Goodman, let's bring in Short Sleeve Samson, who was a midget wrestler, and bring him in as miniside. And have Timmy Arson beat the shit out of him, and this could lead to a match between the two. It's just that Frank Goodman at the time did not think that Timmy Arson was uh, a main event enough or star enough to be given to homicide. He wanted to have homicide against like the AJ Styleses and you know the, the, the bigger you know nationwide names at the time, which I totally understand. But still, as a friend for Timmy Arson, it was a little frustrating. And I know he worked his ass off. And Guy just absolutely loved Johnny Rods. And um, the reason why I mention all this is now we have a couple of days later after ECW One Night Stand, and we have the debut edition of ECW on Sci-Fi. And yeah, they open up with the title presentation of Rob Van Dam, which when we get into an upcoming episode, he blew it. He blew it. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He blew it. But the first match ever in ECW's, WWE's version, it, to me is always a trivial pursuit question. It's the Sandman versus Timmy Arson, a.k.a. the zombie. God rest his soul. And he came out. I laughed my ass off, and I got a tear in my eye because when I saw him come out there as ridiculous as the zombie was, cutting his promo But to see someone who I was so close friends with actually make that appearance on Nationwide TV, you know, at one point I was so happy for him. And another point, I know he was frustrated because, damn, he had an unbelievable physique without makeup. He had a great wrestling ability. Wasn't great on the mic, but still, he wanted... To be, you know, Timmy Arson He didn't want to be the ECW zombie And look, there's stories that are told publicly And Timmy Arson, before he passed away He did some interviews and did acknowledge that You know, at one point he wanted to stop doing the gimmick And I actually talked him into doing it We were both doing shows for Victory Pro Wrestling at the time And, you know, he had something that nobody else had He had a very unique gimmick that the kids loved they loved to take pictures with him and twist his nipples and pull his hair and fucking just fuck around. He, he had to be the friendly zombie. And I know deep down inside, it's probably not the way he expected his career to turn out. But, you know, I was so happy for him. And, you know, it was a little tribute to him. I'm going to share with you right now how it went down on ECW sci fi. Uh, Timmy Arson, God rest his soul. Miss you, buddy. As the zombie.
8: is it? Ladies and gentlemen, the following
14: contest is scheduled for one fall. Introducing first, The Zombie. What the huh? A
11: zombie?
1: A zombie? No, no, no. Some... Uh, what some... is a rip? What is this? I can, I can assure everyone watching the world premiere of ECW on sci-fi, that Zombie is, well, not an offering of ECW side <laughs> the zombie? I, hey, look! I spent a lot of time in ECW. What The hell is this? I, I, have never saw no zombie. I. Look, he's an ugly-looking yet, what look, ugly-looking SOB. And I don't think he's the new breed unleashed. That's for sure. That's riveting right there. The hell is this guy about? <laughs> this is laughable. What the hell is that? Uh, All righty, man. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, oh. Oh. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> well, take a look at this. I'll tell you what, the zombie zombies are like the living dead. Well, you know what? He might get his wish here in a minute. Check out who's in the house, Styles. Well, unless the zombie is impervious to pain. Sci-fi is going to see the kitchen fan man. Kick your anus zombie, the Sandman, five-time ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The beer-swilling, cane-swinging Sandman. There is no one, in my opinion, more hardcore for ECW than the one and only Sandman. If you've never seen this dude, folks, let me tell you something. He's not a pretty looking wrestler, that's for sure. He's blue collar all the way back. That's how he celebrates in preps. That's the match trap. Right busts himself open before the match even starts. Match trap. There he is for 10 years. For 10 years before becoming a pro wrestler, the Sandman was in and out of prison for four fights and spent six months in solitary confinement for punching out a prison guard. That hey, ECW. Hey Styles, I don't know this zombie, but I'll tell you what, uh, he might not be ECW for long. Oh, no! oh God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh! Welcome to the world of extreme ECW rules. Styles, do it anyway you want. Look at that! The White Russian leg sweep. <laughs> Sam <here> on top. That's <laughs> <laughs> the coming, Zombie. Hey, the first official match. On over. The Sandman! That's just an example, Styles, of the new breed of ECW. Right there! The Sandman! Took the Sandman longer to finish that second beer than it did for him to put away the zombie! Hey, Styles, I got a funny feeling. That, actually, I think we've seen the last of the zombie! Oh my god! Uh, and <laughs> uh, watch this. A white Russian leg sweep. Oh my god, the dust blew up the zombie's body. Yeah. Sandman getting the pin. Oh, that was lucky. And just like that, the heart of oh, like the Sandman! Pin. He's beating the zombie all the way to the back! Hit him again! Ha oh, ha oh, oh. oh, I love it! Look at Sandman! Who loves it! <laughs> You're right, at once, That is the new ECW! A new breed unleashed!
2: 2007, WWE has the draft lottery in a special edition of Raw. And the subplot was Mr. McMahon's Appreciation Night because of losing the ECW title and just being absolutely depressed. And this is Sinet. He uh, was shown in the back and everybody will always remember Paul London (laughs) for this segment. But Mr. McMahon um, would uh, leave... The arena dejected, walk into a white limousine and the limousine exploded. And I've always said over the years that if you have to pick a particular moment where attitude was killed, not necessarily killed, but the beginning of the end of the attitude era, I know, you know, this is not the precise moment, but I always use this as my moment. You know, like when he blew up in the limo, the attitude era started blowing up as well. Um, It was a mess, though, because WWE, who is now a publicly traded company, was trying to play off that this was not storyline. And, you know, WWE was slick. They would always reference Vince McMahon as Mr. McMahon. So as long as you saw Mr. McMahon, they're talking strictly storyline. But when they say Vince McMahon, it's no longer storyline. So when they were writing who blew up Mr. McMahon, Mr. McMahon, Mr. McMahon, you know, people outside of wrestling and, you know, some you know, business people don't understand the difference between Mr. McMahon and Vince McMahon. So now some people thought that he truly died. And I know a lot of people like to jump on the fact that Donald Trump thought that he something happened to him or a few others. Look, you know, you have to understand, he doesn't watch Raw on a weekly basis and heard over news, there were a lot of fucking places that thought Vince McMahon really died in a limousine, all right? The stock went down. There were other people who actually thought that the guy fucking died. They were forced to issue a statement shortly after to insinuate that it was storyline. So when you have the business world and stockholders and others thinking that he really fucking died and his people, you know, con- I mean, even the wilkes Bar Police Department had to put a statement publicly saying, and I quote, regarding WWE at the Wachovia Arena for verification purposes regarding those asking to the alleged car bombing of Chairman Vince McMahon, the incident was a staged event, pre-arranged with the fire department personnel and authorized by township code enforcement officials. All necessary precautions were taken during the filming of the event, so as to ensure the safety and security of all persons involved in the event, Mr. McMahon was not injured during the event, contrary to what is being reported on internet websites and other media sources. A boatload of people outside of wrestling thought he legitimately died in a limousine. So, we we'll just make that clear. But it was hokey. And again, you know, Paul London will always be remembered for it because as he was, Vince was walking out of the arena dejected, Paul London is showing a smile on his face. 2008, Rory Gulak, the brother of Drew Gulak, makes his pro wrestling debut. He debuts for Combat Zone Wrestling's summer school event in Philadelphia. He wrestled under the name Little Mondo and lost against his brother, Drew Gulak. Uh, 2008, we had the, uh, you know, the million, McMahon's millions going down and they started giving away the money, popped a little bit of a, you know, increase of the ratings, but I don't think it's the ratings of what Vince McMahon expected it would be. And we will talk in a very near episode of, uh, how McMahon's millions came to an abrupt end. No, he did not die in a limousine explosion, but. Yeah, I think people will remember how it went down. Closing out 2008, um, Brian Danielson, Daniel Bryan. Uh, we got a lot of buzz this week in 08 because he was getting a WWE tryout match where he actually went on to defeat Lance Cade. But unfortunately, they um, did not hire him at the time. And at that time, I think he was still working for Ring of Honor. Who knew he was going to work the uh, the dark match, but... WWE had their eyes on Daniel Bryan in 08. And I know they had their eyes on him earlier too, but just figured I'd mention it. Now, 2009, Vince McMahon, Monday Night Raw. Now look, 07, blows himself up. 08, McMahon's millions, we know how that ended up. It's now 09, three years in a row, trying to put some buzz around himself for the ratings. He makes this announcement on Monday Night Raw.
8: Well, we have a new WWE champion, chance. we have a new owner here at Raw. I, I don't.
15: I'm in shock still. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Chairman of World Wrestling Entertainment, Mr. McMahon.
6: And you see, Mr. McMahon, with the uh, usual confidence in his eyes and across his face, but you gotta believe, King. This has got to be such an emotional moment for Mr. McMahon. His family emotional is
1: in a moment for me. His family is owned and, and run Monday Night Raw since it's in, inception 17 years ago. Do you have any idea who you can do, owner
6: of No clue. I wouldn't even well, venture Behind me, D'Angelo Williams yeah. from the Panthers. You think maybe Jerry Richardson is the owner of the Carolina Panthers? We're in Charlotte. Now, well, Mr. McMahon did say that he believed there'd be
1: no chance in hell that this person would ever own Monday Night Raw.
12: This is about to be history, made right here.
4: Tonight I uh, come to you with a, with a heavy heart. and um, I've done a lot of soul searching over the last several weeks. I've had conversations with uh, my family, my friends, and my financial advisors. And at this stage of my career, there's no doubt that I have made the right decision to sell Monday Night Raw. Monday Night Raw will be uh, independently owned and operated by a man with whom I have a, a history with. However, never never allow your personal feelings getting in the way of a, a good business decision. I've been compensated uh, in an overwhelming fashion, which, for a man of my standards, is saying something. So, uh, Allow me without further ado to introduce you to the man uh, via satellite. Joining us now, ladies and gentlemen, the new and no doubt proud owner of Monday Night Raw, Donald J. Trump.
10: Thanks, Vince. You finally put your ego aside and made a smart business move for a change. Uh, it's true. I, Donald Trump, am now the sole owner of Monday Night Raw. You know, Vince, you never really showed your appreciation for the Raw audience. Never once did I see that appreciation.
4: Well, that's not true, I'm Don-
10: going to do stuff that's never been done before, never been seen before. People what? have been watching Raw for 17 years and they deserve something special. You've made a I'm, lot of money off these people. It's about time you give back. I, like our president says, give back. No, no, wait a minute, Donald.
4: I, I have been giving back, and I've been doing it for for some time. And quite frankly, I don't think it's too much for us for the W universe to give back to me. Giving back and...
10: Raw and has produced more weekly episodes than any show in entertainment history and the wwe universe is the reason why it's time they got something back a little appreciation for their loyalty for being a fan my first act as owner is to do something unprecedented unheard of something you were too selfish and cheap to make happen vince for the first time in its 17-year history Next week Raw will be presented live on USA commercial free. Wait a minute.
4: <laughs> commercial. I know Donald has a sense of humor. You're really not serious about the commercial free stuff. Commercial free. I didn't sound like That's a Donald right, Trump. Vince,
10: it'll be commercial free. I'll repeat that for you, Vince. Commercial free. No commercials. The whole telecast, no commercials. That's because of Donald Trump. Who ever heard of something like
15: that? No this? one's ever heard of
4: anything like that, quite frankly. I certainly haven't, and um, I think you've lost your marbles. I mean, it's all about the money. And guess what, Vince?
10: I'm personally going to be at Raw next week to run things the way I want to see them run, meaning the right way. So look, a little word of advice. Don't get in my way. And oh, by the way,
15: Vince,
10: you look better bald. I had so much fun shaving you. That's enough of that. That's enough. Cut it off. Cut it off. Cut
4: it off. Cut it off.
2: That storyline would last only a week because uh, the stock, once again, people thought Donald Trump really bought raw. Stock at the time went down almost a dollar a share, it went down, I think, 7%. And WWE was afraid that the stock would further decline, which I thought was just asinine because you're an entertainment company or a storyline company. If people are stupid enough to think that, you know, something real is happening and they don't verify it, then someone else will take advantage of it and buy the stock at a cheaper price. I just, I don't like this idea that an entertainment company does an entertainment angle. Some people who stockholders don't believe or don't realize it's entertainment, get rid of their stock, and then you fucking change your storyline? Come on. You know, let it, you know, let it simmer for a couple of weeks and see what happens in the long run. Anyway, the storyline with Donald Trump as the owner of Raw only would last about a week. So uh, 2009 Sobey Entertainment, and if that company sounds very familiar, yes, that is the company that produced the album for Brooke Hogan and her boyfriend, Stax, at the time. Well, they filed a $15 million lawsuit against the Big Show and his wife and the WWE because they originally said that they worked out some type of a boxing contract for Big Show. Remember when Big Show We thought he was going to become a boxer and it didn't work out. Well, this was the entertainment company that got fucked over in the process. But the interesting thing about it, I actually pulled the court documents to do some research as far as what went down. And again, this case was filed in 2009. Do you know that that case did not finish until July of 2017? And even with that, it was dismissed with prejudice means, which means that because it's dismissed, and so be dismissed it, it can never be brought back under no circumstances. So that's the definition of dismissed with prejudice means. 2009, you look back on it, You kind of wish, maybe he went into rehab. He might still be alive to this day. But it was this week in 2009, that WWE fired Umaga. After failing a drug test, he refused to go into rehab. This would have been in second strike with the wellness program, he, his first strike was originally because of the signature pharmacy scandal in 2007. And it said because, you know, Umaga is no longer with us. So uh, 2009 as well this week, uh, at that time, Chris Jericho taped a five-part series for VH1 called The 100 Most Shocking Moments in Music History. Some people might mix that up with the, uh, the segment that Mark McGrath did with VH1 back in 2001. It is totally different. And by this time, we had some other tragic happenings in the music world. So the the top 100 in 2009 was much different than the top 100 in 2001. But still, this didn't air on TV, I believe, until November of, or December of 2009. But Chris Jericho really was entertaining in this. And if you've never seen it, um, try to get some footage. I searched online to try to watch it. VH1 had it. On their website for a very long time, but for some reason took it down. So, 2010, as a result of what we talked about last week, Brian Danielson was released from the WWE because of what went down during the Nexus uh, dismantlement of John Cena. And, you know, you got to remember CM Punk was involved with that as well, getting punked out and the ring being destroyed. But Brian Danielson, you know, choking out Justin Roberts with the necktie was a little bit too uh, far. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of claims that uh, advertisers were very irate at it. This is Sinet. And again, this might have been probably a good thing to happen for Brian Danielson at the time because people wanted him even more. Uh, once Once he came back, I mean, you know, a lot of other bumps in the road still happened with his WWE career early on but I actually think this helped with Daniel Bryan's popularity. So, um, 2010, for the TNA fans, they were very much de- uh, disappointed. Dixie Carter, and, and I actually joked about this on Twitter earlier this week. You know, I was bringing up all of the infamous teases and dates that they did over the years. 10, 10, 10, August 1st. I mean, there was a lot of them. And back this week in 10, she was teasing a big, nice surprise for Slammiversary and teasing other things and and ended up that it was Tommy Dreber coming in. I'm not saying there's anything bad, but she would hype things up. And the funny thing is, is that after that, she's tweeting, been up for hours, so excited I can't sleep TNA is about to change forever. Can't share it with you. Can't share it with myself. I can't even share it with the talent. Just got off the phone with Spike TV's Kevin K. He says that this will change TNA as well and blah, 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 and hyped it up and hyped it up and hyped it up. I I'm going to tease everyone. Do you remember what was supposed to change TNA forever at that time? Go look it up. You look at it. You just can't cry wolf like that, man. That they you just can't keep hyping shit up and not delivering. Maybe in your eyes, it's a big fucking deal, but maybe you do need to pull people outside of your inner circle. Well, she, well now now that no longer applies, but you see what I mean by that. So, anyway, um, 2010, Scott Hall, Sean Waltman, ODB, uh, all out of TNA. Scott Hall uh, had to do with um, a recent incident. He had been arrested two days before their sacrifice pay-per-view, disorderly intoxication resisting arrest. He did not tell TNA management at the time of the arrest, so they actually let him go. Sean Waltman was a little bit of a different situation. There was a lot of reports that he was suffering from hepatitis C. He had to no-show the lockdown pay-per-view. ODB, I think, was just unhappy At the time of being in TNA, so and we're gonna wrap this up momentarily. 2011, TNA releases Nigel McGuinness. I mean, obviously, and it was funny because I remember we were covering at that time that we heard from Mister Mystery and others that unfortunately had tested positive for hepatitis B. And people, fucking, you know, you you're full of shit. You're fake news. You're a liar. This is an ad, not true, not true. And it was true. It was true. So. 2011 a jury in georgia awards the family of nancy benoit 125,000 in damages and 19.6 million dollars in punitive damages after hustler magazine published nude photographs of the late nancy benoit in a march 08 issue and right after the verdict was announced the judge ruled that the magazine was only liable in 250000 in damages, citing the state of Georgia's law regarding caps of punitive damages. So basically, uh, the publishing group was only liable for a total of $375,000 in damages. And in May of 2012, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta threw out the judgment in its entirety citing lack of evidence. So a tw- And people have pointed this out over the years a $20 million judgment on behalf of the Benoit family was reduced to $375,000 and then reduced to nothing. Fucked up. 2012, uh, we had Monday Night Raw. We had John Laurinaitis, who was the GM at the time. And heats later... You know he wasn't uh, treated all that well. Uh, we remember right around this time the infamous segment with Cindy Lauper breaking the record over his head. Who could forget that? But also this week of 2012 he had this very memorable, albeit short, but still very memorable match. Enjoy. Everybody always run The
3: following contest arranged by Mister
14: Laurinaitis features a former Raw main eventer in honor of the upcoming 1,000th episode of Monday Night Raw,
11: July 23rd. Why are we celebrating past Raw superstars anyway? Because
1: we got a current Raw superstar standing right in front of your face! <laughs> what? I'm the one man band, baby! Ugh. And it's time! You hear me? It's my time! It's Slater time! Baby! Slater time! Oh, is- man! It's- Well time is not on your side Are you kidding me? from raw's past here's a man who well he debuted in the 1996 royal rumble match and his rivalries over the years were with a who's who in wwe history can you remember his battles with Shawn michaels and the undertaker kane and gold yeah, among I others think, i do i think he was on uh raw's episode number 200 something like that but you know what's amazing he looks just like he did then. Now, I mean, he's unbelievable. I'll never forget the Raw. I mean, I was traumatized for months after that when he actually delivered the Vader bomb to that WWE president, the late, great Gorilla Monsoon. Remember that night? I do remember that night. And now Vader looking to make another Raw moment, this time against Heath Slater. You know who Vader looks like? Who? He looks just like John Demore. Look at him, look. You need John Dvorak. That's what I said. John Dvorak. What do you think is. <laughs> Come on. Uh, 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 Well, uh, he's Slater. Uh, he's bitten off more than he can yeah. chew. Oh, invader. <laughs> oh, what are you laughing at? Yeah.
15: This is great.
1: I know it's great. Yeah. I don't keep those arms down, though. The Let's Go Vader chance to fill the XL Center in Hartford. Look at him. You want to hear a true story? When I first started with WWE, yeah. Mr. McMahon
4: uh, wanted me to do him a favor. And that favor was to try on Vader's mask to see if it fit. Well, I did that. First rib ever played on me in WWE, by the way, is
1: Vader unloads on Heath Slater. Your face still smell bad. <laughs> Look go, right. no, unloading on Vader. Oh, man! The explosiveness of the super heavyweight. And we understand of being told right now that you can go to the WWE.com alumni page to see how destructive Vader has been in the WWE over the years. And we understand that's pretty destructive right now. Another great initiative by Mr. Laurinaitis, that a different surprise Raw superstar from the past will be appearing every Monday night until the star-studded
6: Raw 1000 episode on July 23rd. All right, I'm gonna give... Whoa, look at this. Vader. Vader. I'm gonna give this credit for that one. That is a great idea. I mean, listen to how
11: energized this uh, WWE Universe has become, seen this face from the past.
1: Vader looks better than ever. I know it! Look at that! And Vader into the cover on <laughs> Slater. And Slater kicks out somehow.
0: I mean, here's oh a man who is not only, only known for his power oh. moves, but he can fly around the ring oh, as well. You know,
1: These strikes right here. Oh.
15: Oh,
1: oh. One man oh. rock band, or southern rock band Sunk Paul. Oh. Slater's not done yet. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Now Slater may be done. Oh. And at Slater somehow manages to kick out again at two. I don't know how in the what was Slater thinking. He's gonna body slam Vader?
15: Uh-oh. Listen to this chance. Oh, belly to belly power. <laughs> I
1: think we, we know what may be coming here. Oh, uh, talk about a blast from the pack. What time is it, Cole? Oh, it's time. It's time. It's time. It's Vader time. Oh boy. It was Slater time. Now it's Vader, Vader time, the Vader bomb. Three, two, three. Vader victorious in his return to Monday Night Raw. Vader. The number one trend in the
6: world
2: right now on Twitter. is Vader time. Wow. 2014, CM Punk and AJ Lee get married. Congratulations to the couple. Also in 2014, Tessa Blanchard makes her pro wrestling debut. She debuts for the Queens of Combat 2 event in Charlotte, North Carolina, under her name, Tessa Blanchard. She wrestles in her first match and loses to Miss Rachel. 2014, Black Thursday in the WWE. Um, WWE got a poor financial outlook. Uh, after the launch of the WWE Network, which is pretty funny because you realize how good the company is doing today in the stock market and everything, but 2014 it was no laughing matter. They released JTG, Drew McIntyre, Jinder Mahal, Oksana, Kurt Hawkins, Teddy Long, Brodus Clay, Evan Bourne, Camacho, Yoshitatsu, and referee Mark Harris. They also uh, discontinued a lot of pyro because of the expense of having pyrotechnics on their shows. Originally, they were going to do another season of Legends House. They scrapped that. They actually made a lot of changes. Even internally, they let go a lot of uh, employees. So it was a very big deal in 2014. It's not that long ago, uh, Black Thursday in WWE. Good to see them turn it around. But uh, yeah, where is season two of Legends House? They should do that. It It was very enjoyable season one. 2014, just to wrap up that year, TNA announced that the newest members of their Hall of Fame would be Team 3D. 2015, WWE announces on a press release that they are launching a gaming channel on YouTube. It is called Up Up Down Down, hosted by Xavier Woods. I know that that channel is taking a life of its own, and the latest buzz is seeing the New Day take on the Elite in a video game challenge. You know, WWE and video games—it's—it's it's pretty cool. And, uh, hey, you know what? Video games over a party and stuff like that, that's the way of life for a lot of people that uh, have wrestling as a full-time job and, you know, it just keeps you out of trouble and you have, you know, that that competition still. And me, I, I've been little by little getting back into video games somewhat. You know, I got some pretty cool, uh, you know, retro stuff in my house. I like retro. The new stuff, I'm not into as much yet, but me... You know, give me retro games and, you know, you got me as an opponent, so. And finally, wrapping this episode up, at the Slammiversary pay-per-view in 2016, Jeff Hardy defeated Matt Hardy in a full metal mayhem match. This was hyping up their big feud and the, the birth of Broken Matt. I mean, just the development of Broken Matt, which was awesome. And Gail Kim was announced as the newest inductee for the TNA Hall of Fame. Notable birthdays this week, those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Bruiser Brody, the ultimate warrior, Buddy Roberts, Paul Jones, Buzz Sawyer, Kurt Von Brauner, Mitsaharo Misawa, George Harris, Hector Garza, Antonio Pena, The Great Goliath, and Jim Wilson. I wonder if that's the Jim Wilson that was on Morton Downey Jr. that time. I, I got to check that out. That might have actually been the Jim Wilson that went at it with Dr. D. David Schultz. Remember that? Larry Henning, happy birthday, turns 82. Sweet Daddy Siki, 78. Fred Curry, 77. Otto Juan, 75. Dan Crawford, 73. Salvatore Bellomo, 67. Negro Navarro, 61. Jacques Rougeau, 58. Scott Norton and Brad Armstrong, turn 57. The Sandman and Virgil, they both turn 56. Johnny Hotbody and Jerry Lynn, 55. Big Vito, 54. Minoru Suzuki, 50. Melissa Coates and Thrasher of the Headbangers, 49. Kenny Chaos, 48. Mark Henry and Chuck Palumbo turn 47. Larry Destiny and Nitro Girl Whisper, 45. Biggie Biggs, 44. Brian Alvarez, I'm a fan, 43. Jeff Jones, 42. Masada, 37. El Toro, 34. Bailey turns 29. And Rezar of the Authors of Pain turns 24. Notable debuts this week in history Bestia Salvaje debuted in 83, Universal Dos Mil in 85, Pimpinella Escarlata in 88, Glenn Osborne in 1990, Kane Newjack and Scott Damore in 1992, Paraguayo Jr. in 95, Oscar in 2004, Rory Gulak in 2008, and Tessa Blanchard in 2014. And finally, those who passed away this week in wrestling history. We lost Gypsy Joe at the age of 82, Diablo Velasco at 80, Grizzly Smith died at 77, Ron Trongard at 72, Caesar Valentino at 67, Al Green at 57, Archangel 51, Buddy Wayne 50. Dick Murdoch and Sensational Sherry died at 49, Masami Sarnaka at 48, Mitsuharu Misawa and Ted Tanabe 46, Peter Maivia, hi, Chief Peter Maivia, 45. Mark Domino Gedge at 44. Someone here in the Northeast that was such a cool fucking guy in USA Pro Wrestling. I think people still to this day don't even realize that he had passed away. But my thoughts are with you. My prayers are with you and your family and friends as well. Danny Yams died at 34. And last but not least, another guy who was very interesting, very cool. Never got to know him too much personally, but anytime I was around him, he was a very unique and, and very likable guy. Trent Acid, he passed away this week in history at the age of 29. So with that said, I am out of here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Week in Wrestling History. I know it's uh, just a massive amount of clips this week, but I think you would enjoy pretty much all of them. So I will return next week with your next episode. And I know next week, yes, it will be the anniversary of the tragic murder-suicide of the Benoit family and a few other things that went down as well. So we will definitely get into that. So please, feedback as always. Follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony, at DonTony.com. If you want to check out uh, archive episodes of this show and others, it is www.dontonykevincastle.com. And once again, if you like what we do and you want to help support these shows, keep them free for everyone, uh, help us keep the bills paid, and not only that, get a whole bunch of uh, bonus content for your, um, you know, as our appreciation, check out our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash for as little as five bucks. You not only could help us financially with these shows, may not sound like a lot of money, but you get a couple hundred people, $5 a clip, it really does add up quickly. But we have exclusive podcasts there that are exclusive just for our patrons. Um, Hundreds of hours of Breakfast Soup, which is hosted by yours truly, and Mish of Wrestling Soup. You have Kevin Castle, everybody who ever asked for him to do a solo show, he has a solo show there as well. We have pay-per-view predictions contests. We have giveaways, drawings, early releases of shows. We're always getting feedback from everybody. That they're they're truly the stockholders of what we do. So give it a shot. Sign up, and as I always tell everyone, if you sign up and don't like it, just contact me privately and say, "Hey, man, you know, I know, just send me my five dollars back." I would be more than happy to. Don't feel embarrassed. Come on, you buy something, you're not happy with it, but no one yet has ever taken me up on that, and people have just been shocked at the amount of content. Mish and I just did an almost four-and-a-half-hour episode of Breakfast Soup, and it was feedback, rapid-fire questions from our patrons, just, you know, really interesting convo and people are just applauding it. So I'm telling you, you go over there, you'll be shocked at how much exclusive content is there just for our patrons. So, all right, everyone, be well. I will be back with episode 25, one week from today. Take care, everyone. Talk to you all soon. Ciao.
15: Big Mac, Chicken McNuggets. No, Big Mac and Quarter Pounder
1: with cheese. Or filet fish
0: With MyHealthPolicy.com, I can go online and compare Medicare Advantage plans from some top-rated national insurers, including $0 monthly premium plans. I can learn about plans in my area and talk with a licensed insurance agent if needed. MyHealthPolicy.com has made doing my research a whole lot easier. Agent, myhealthpolicy.com